Welcome to They Live By Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, joined as always by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today, guys? Hey. Hey, how's it going? Good morning to you. It's good afternoon to me, but good morning to you as always. Uh, you guys had a good week? Well, so kind of tied to the theme of this episode, I'd had a good week until Thursday afternoon. I got the second vaccine. Um, so I can choose whether or not I want to wear a mask now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, um, CDC. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I um, got, I was expecting, so you're supposed to, like 12 hours after you get the shot, it's supposed to kind of like feel the effects, which would have been three in the morning for me. But by 7 p.m. that night, so about four hours after I got it, I was already getting the chills. And I messaged my, my boss and I was like, hey, um, sorry, not coming into work tomorrow. I can already see where this is going. And I was knocked out, like, like a whole day of like just going back and forth between chills and like deep sweats and like body aches and like no hunger. It was crazy. And then the, the weirdest thing was I like woke up Saturday morning fine. <laughs> it was the fastest turnaround. Strange. So, yeah. Anyways, there you go. Second vaccine. The, the warnings are real and the recovery is also real. Did you have Pfizer or Moderna? Moderna. I had Moderna too. Uh, yeah, uh, that was how mine was. Like, I kind of felt fatigued, like a little bit after I got. It. I was like, okay, I can handle this. Woke up the next morning, I had broken a fever apparently because I was all gross and sweaty. <laughs> and then the whole rest of the day, I just felt awful. Like somebody had beat me half to death with baseball mats. Jeez, <laughs> yeah. you guys are selling this vaccine for me, guys. I can't wait to get mine. <laughs> Actually, that's that's a good sign. It's a it's a tr- it's like a signal that it's working. And so like. Yeah. Yeah, it's supposed to be like a, a good sign. The worse you are on the um, on the you know recovery or that that twenty first twenty four hours. I feel better to cough on everyone now. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite pastime of Zach. Uh-huh. Cool. So we're gonna get cracking into discussing our first film of this episode, which is the extremely long titled Italian film of investigation of a citizen above suspicion. I'm gonna give the Italian name a go. I can't roll my R's though, so just be aware of that. So, oh God, Indigan Indigine su un cittadino al di sopra di ogni sospetto. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> now you do it, Zach. No, I will not. We've heard. And there goes our Italian viewers. Uh, yeah. Uh, so this is a, an Elio Petri film uh, from 1971. So just give you a real brief synopsis for those who haven't seen it before. Uh, Chief of detectives who's behind the homicide section kills his mistress and deliberately leaves clues to prove his own responsibility for the crime. Um, so this is a, this is a wild film. I think you guys would agree on that. It's has that sort of, um, that sort of strange dreaminess to it. Kind of like that, uh, death by hanging. Had, I, that's what I was thinking by the end. Yeah, yeah, definitely had those Ashima vibes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the lead performance by Jean Maria Valente is incredible. He's such such so great in this film. Um, yeah, just what, what are you guys' opening thoughts on this? I I I loved it when I watched it uh, a little while ago. Um, Zach, do you want to come in with some thoughts here first? Uh, yeah, yeah, I uh, I enjoyed it. I actually just watched it uh this morning when i woke up so i don't forget it by the end of the week um but i really enjoyed it uh it's fun um i didn't have a whole lot of thoughts until i guess around the halfway point like i was like enjoying my time but i was almost like 
it was a, I guess the best way I kind of felt by the end is it was like a long joke that finally had its punchline at the end and that it all kind of came together for me. I was like, I get where it's going and you kind of know what the joke is going to be, but it works. And I, and I really enjoyed my time with it. Um, you know, I don't have a whole lot of deep thoughts here, but it's interesting. Um, I, I'm sure there's, you know, we'll get into some more details here, but I just love movies that play with time. That's like one of the fastest ways to kind of hook me in uh, and, and jump around between, um, you know, kind of confuse reality a little bit uh, as long as they resolve it. <laughs> uh, and I, and I feel like this film did a pretty good job of uh, resolving it, at least in a way that, you know, was, was enough to understand what they were trying to do. And I, I loved it. Actually, I, when I was ranking my top five for the, we just kind of for fun, we were all talking about our top five in the movies we've seen in the film club discussion. I didn't include this one, but as I was preparing for this, I think I might even throw it up in near my top five. I love this movie and the way that it was handled. It's got all the kind of pulpiness of a Jalo film, I think, that I that I love. Um, maybe a little higher technical, um, you know, skills than, than some of them. And the acting of John Maria Valente is just, oh my gosh, like, he's amazing in it. So, I'll stop there for now. A lot to get into, but that's that's kind of high level for me. Yeah, as you brought up the giallo aspect. Um, there was a similar film movement in Italy at this time um, that rather than being kind of like slashery horror films like giallos were, they were police dramas. They were called the Poliziotecci or Poliziotecchi. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I can't remember how you pronounce the Asian Italians one way or the other. Um, but yeah, this is basically like a kind of like a an anti- Poliziotechi film because it takes all the um, all the tropes and inverts it and obviously makes it a bit more absurd. Um, it just brings in that, like I said, that sort of strange dreaminess. That yeah, it's 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 a great film that kind of plays with your with your expectations. Um, message wise, obviously, the film is a very clear message and one that's kind of even rings true today is are the law above the law, basically, and what what can a, a police officer get away with mm-hmm. um and this film kind of proves that if he puts his mind to it seems though a police officer can get away with damn near anything and obviously that's still so um that's still so true even as of today and um, with recent events over the last sort of 12 months or so we've seen that a lot yeah i think the way they handled the message was probably like kind of borderline cartoonish a little bit like you know, the way that they were, this is where you, the comparisons to Death by Hanging kind of came in for me a little bit, the way that his subordinates were so unable to see or recognize that he had any, you know, fault in it, even when he, it was so obvious that he did. Um, but I think as a, as a warning and as like a message film, it, it, it plays well. Um, but- yeah. Well, one scene I love that always stuck with me, like, uh, like full disclosure, I didn't watch this when we watched it with the film club a couple of weeks ago because I'd only just seen it towards the end of 2020 and it was still very fresh in my mind. And there's just one scene that stuck with me um, where he confesses to the crime to this random guy on the street, tells him all he needs to know, tells him every aspect of the case. And then when this guy goes into the police station to report it, he's standing there face to face with him. And, he's, and he basically says, no, that's the guy's like, that's not him. This couldn't be. He's a police officer. He, he was literally face to face. He knows it, it has to be him, but yet he refuses to say it is him because this guy's a police officer. He couldn't possibly be the murderer. 
And I don't know if you remember this detail, but then later he goes, he happens after he kind of the, after the, you know, uh, the, the policeman finally kind of the, or the detective decides to just admit his guilt. Like he sees that same guy in the police hallway being let out. And he's like, it's okay. You can talk about it now. Mm. And the guy's like, no way I'm going down that again. Like, no way. <laughs> I've already done that once. Like I'm not doing that again. Yeah. Um, so That's... it's, Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Actually, now that I say that out loud, I don't know that it is a cartoonish message. Maybe not. I well, think I, cartoonish, yeah. maybe, like, I think absurd, the, the way it's presented is kind of in that sort of theater of the absurd, a Samuel Beckett style of how it's presented, similar to with Death by Hanging. It's kind of meant to be darkly humorous and the fact that this guy just keeps getting away with it, despite the fact that he no longer even wants to really get away with it. He just wants someone to figure out that he's the killer to the point where it's driving him a bit mad. Um, so yeah, I don't, I wouldn't call it cartoonish. I would say it's more in line with, with sort of absurdism. Yeah. I wanted to ask you guys, cause one element that, you know, after I got finished watching it, I was, I'm not gonna say confused, but I, I had some reservations of what his, I guess his motivation was like, cause they kind of paint it like three different ways. Uh, one, it almost seems like, Oh, well he's leaving the homicide department and, he's almost showing how incompetent they are in a way. It's almost like that sort of thing. And then it goes into, Oh, there was some jealousy there or, or there was this element that, Oh, I just want to see what I can get away with. And, um, am I above, because he has that recording where he talks about if he's above suspicion, if he, is he above suspicion and stuff like that. So how did you guys read that? Cause it kind of gives you like several different motivations for them. Or is it just kind of just a simple mix of everything? I think for me, the motivation is not as important. I think the character is just more a vessel for the message. So his motivation isn't really that important because the message is that to show how incompetent the police can be and show that citizens can think that the police are above suspicion when they can be just as guilty. They're just normal people. So I, I feel like the motivations are less important and it's just more about he is a, he is a vessel for this message. You know, just to kind of build off what you said, Adam, I think that's a great segue also to talking about the extremely kind of messed up female lead of Augusta Terzi um, and their relationship. You know, I it like she, she represented, I think, a lot of his insecurities, right? The character kind mm -hmm. of represented like and they in the beginning, it was almost like, OK, like they have this kind of weird relationship where they do fake murders and they like take photos of, you know, crime scenes. And like, it's just their thing, I guess. Right. That's whatever. That's fine. Um, uh, but then you see how it's obviously getting under his skin and she's so vicious in her attacks on his masculinity. Um, without spoiling too much, I'll just leave it at that. But like she's so vicious on his like her attacks on him as like a person and a man that I think he boiled over at some point and like the games kind of became like real. And, and, and in that moment he didn't, because he felt he was above the law, like he didn't have that thing that would stop him from actually following through on the murder. Right. That's kind of how I read it. Like, like he didn't have that. Most of us would have that sort of, you know, checkpoint in our mind of like, should I go through with this? Like, there's going to be consequences, you know, and he didn't really have that moment of, of, of doubt around that. Um, yeah. 
Well, I, you know, it's kind of, I don't have like a end result of this, but there's this kind of this idea that he does care a lot about his, his image. You know, he's very well put together. He's, he plays all the parts to being this really good cop and someone who's just got a promotion at the beginning of the film. He goes into the political circuit of it. And, uh, you know, like you said, Chris, she challenges that, you know, it's almost like he's playing pretend and that it's just almost like fake it till you make it. He has the image of it and he believes this so much that if somebody challenges that, it kind of tears him apart as well. Yeah. That's a great point. Not only his masculinity, but she also kind of calls bluff on this idea that he's perfect and like this great homicide detective that's above the law, right? Like she directly kind of calls that out. Well, yeah, and it, you know, because he's a at least a half. I mean, it's obvious he's an intelligent guy for um, a lot of aspects, and his police department's so terrible. They talk about how many crimes he solved. I was like, well, if they're as incompetent as he tried to make this one crime scene be, it's no wonder he was able to catch ninety five percent of the murders in the city. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm just going back and checking. Um, so this was, they shoot pictures, put this film at 2319. Okay. How does that, how does that sit with y'all? Yeah, I, I'd say. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, as we covered in our IMDb discussion episode, what seems low from another list perspective is actually quite good for they shoot pictures. And yeah, that seems reasonable. Like it's, I can't really think of much negatives with the film. I didn't. I certainly can't think of any now. Looking back on when I watched it, there's nothing that really jumped out at me at the time from saying, "Oh, I didn't like this aspect. I didn't like that aspect." Um, so I, I just got on IMDb, and this just blew my mind that the main guy is Indio from For a Few Dollars More. Didn't realize that. Just completely, I did not realize that was him. So unrelated, but I just I was excited to learn that. Oh. <laughs> That's interesting. John, John Maria Valente? Yeah, I didn't I, I didn't put it together when I was watching the movie. I suppose it's a bit more scruffy looking and for a few dollars more, where he's obviously yeah. a lot more clean cut. He's in the fistful of dollars as well. Yeah, he plays the villain in both. Um, oh, that's yeah, very, and, uh, that's intriguing. Yeah. Like, I'll be honest, like for a few dollars more is like the least memorable of the three for me. Fistful of dollars is my favorite and then Good value Glee is just so memorable for so many of its sequences and set pieces, but for a few dollars more, kind of goes under the radar a little bit for me. Well, I, I guess it's because that's the one like Clint Eastwood kind of takes the biggest back seat for because yeah. that's really a vehicle for uh, LeCleef, Um and it's really about him and uh, El Indio. But yeah, I'm I'm just amazed that was him. I really didn't recognize him, so that's awesome. And of course, Ennio Morricone did the score of this one, which was great as always because it's always Ennio. slaps, <laughs> always slaps. He was also in Le Circle Rouge. That's good. Yeah, there, just before we move on too much from the spaghetti westerns, just just a natural chance to get. To, have you all seen a bullet for the general by chance? I have not. Neither have I. No, it's a fun one. He's a, he's a he's a prominent character in there as well. But oh, okay, cool. Uh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that connection either. Yeah, he looks different when he's out in the West, all scruffed up. <laughs> yeah, it's very clean cut in this compared. He can just hide his identity just by like combing his hair back. <laughs> yeah, That's amazing. Uh, just while we're on sort of maybe a bit of a tangent um, with sort of films that are kind of connected to this, did you guys hear about the 
well, it was a attempted remake in Hollywood for this. I film. was I, I read like a little snippet about it, but I I didn't read a whole lot. Yeah, it was um it was there was a treatment on a screenplay written by Paul Schrader. Okay. Would have done a great. Yeah, I think that would have been. Yeah, I think he would have done a great job at this. And then the lead, they were looking for either Al Pacino or Christopher Walken. In the lead, I could see Al Pacino. Actually, I could see both. I could see both working. Yeah, I think think Walken. Yeah, Walken would do it kind of differently, but I think Al Pacino would be sort of the best like for like Mm -hmm. um, for for Volante. Um, Do they have a director attached? um, I'm looking at it here. There's this guy I haven't heard of, Andrei Konchalovsky. Have to look. Have to look him up a little bit more to see if I recognize any of his films. But um, yeah. Let's go back to where I read something about it when I was it's on, a few minutes it's ago. on the Wikipedia page. Um, there's actually a section on the Wikipedia page for it. It's a small section. Okay, I don't know if, how true this is on IMDb. It does have it as um, that guy you mentioned, and as well as Sidney Lumet. Which would have, yes, I would so, love Sydney to do that. Yes. That would actually have been awesome. So on the on the part of Sydney uh, Lumet's potential um, involvement, that actually came later in the nineties when Jodie Foster's production company Egg Pictures were also trying to get it off the ground. So this wouldn't have been Paul Schrader's written one. This would have been one about a few years later after the other one kind of fell through and got shelved. Um, Sydney Lumet was attached to direct uh, another attempted, but they never even got beyond pre-production for that one. Apparently, I just want to see if Andre Konchalovsky did anything that I know of. Um, I would have loved to see this be like a William Friedkin movie. Oh, yeah, that would be cool. yeah, I could see that. Like, yeah, that would like Paul Schrader's script, William Friedkin directed, just kind of like get real gritty, or even even De Palma. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure, he would have brought. Well, yeah, as much as he loves Jallos, that would actually be kind of. Yeah, yeah, if you wanted to get really wild with it, I think <laughs> would have been a good pick. Um, I don't recognize any of this guy. Oh, Tango and Cash. That's pretty oh, okay. much. Okay, I don't Tango and Cash. I recognize from this guy's filmography. Sure. I do not do not recognize. Actually, much. what year did Tango and Cash come come out? Because that might have made sense. Because this was sixty-seven. This was uh, seventy, right? Eighty-nine. Um, so then Tango and Cash came out in nineteen eighty-nine. Well, I think it's kind of interesting they wanted to remake this. I do like this movie. It's just kind of like, even when I just like was glanced around IMDb, it has like less than 10,000 ratings. I've never even heard of this until I was picking movies for, because this is my list. So I was just picking things like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. And just throw it on the list. Got a lot of buzz at Cannes when, okay. when it came out. So I think that's probably why um, they, they, they felt that they could translate it to the, to the American market. Um, so if it got a lot of buzz in Cannes, it probably got shown a lot in the, like in the bigger cities in the U.S., like New York and, and L.A. Probably showed I, it. I wonder if this was looked at at the '90s. If it's the maybe a reason it didn't really go through is just because of the Rodney King stuff, like the police. That was a huge part of L.A. and uh, police brutality, and they were probably yeah. like, this might be tone deaf to do right it, now. Yeah. They wouldn't be doing it now either. No, <laughs> no. no way. I think it probably couldn't even be made in America now, to be honest with you. I just, I just don't think it would swing. Nobody, it would just be distasteful, really. Yeah, it's not like a, a topic that people really want to explore philosophically right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, I'm going to bring up a spiral since I just saw it last night. And they, what I thought was interesting about that is they do try to tackle that somewhat 
but they kind of do it with kids' gloves. Mm. It's like, yes, we're going to talk about it, but we're going to take the most exaggerated version of a corrupt cop. So, you know, we're not really saying all that much. And I feel like, you know, I was like, I could see somebody criticizing that, but I was like, I guess that's really the only way you can do it at this point and not re- and be inoffensive about it. Well, I don't know. I know you guys aren't the biggest Marvel fans, um, but I don't um, know if you guys watched uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I don't know if you guys saw that series on Disney Plus, but they kind of try, they kind of try and tackle that as well. Um, again, with, with kids' gloves, but they do try and sort of tackle that angle. And like they even put a disclaimer before the episode, saying there might be a scene in the episode that features something like this, which I won't go into for spoilers. I won't tell you exactly how it goes down, but like even before there was a disclaimer saying, you know, some people might find this this episode a bit distressing because the themes that are tackled in it. So it does need to be something that some people are willing to maybe try and touch, but. I think it's kind of like in the 2000s after Columbine where nobody wanted to touch a school shooter. Style. Oh, yeah, unless you tell Elephant. What was that movie? Yeah. Elephant came out? Just, yeah. Just yeah, with Elephant. And then, obviously, then they tackled it in the first season of American Horror Story as well. But for a while, it was just it was just an untouchable subject. You just couldn't go near it. Um, so I feel like police brutality is kind of like that now as well. You just you, Executives will be afraid to go near it, and I don't blame them. I do think it's so important that these stories need to be told, but I think it's it's better to tell them through justice for the real people than just making it into like for for entertainment purposes. Well, I I guess the issue you kind of run into this is, especially in a highly politicized time, you know, even with anything, any everything you can do is politicized in some way. Even if you were to try to take a neutral stance on it. The idea, or you tried to be as objective about the issue as possible, you're going to be thrown into one side or the other, yes. most likely by the other side that's against you, saying that you're, or whatever. Yes. And that's just how that idea goes, is who want, who really wants to touch it unless you just really want to take the risk, or you've done so much in your career, you know, you could see like an older director being like, yeah, might as well. If my career's ruined, what does it really hurt? <laughs> get yeah. a couple on us, just... <laughs> I mean, what else is he doing? That's it. You know, just, just throw your hat into the ring. I mean, the thing that Hollywood has done, or, or sorry, films have done a good job of in the past is taking an issue that's like this sensitive and telling a completely uh, separate story where, like, the theme of you know police autonomy uh, and versus like citizenship, sort of like this debate is like something that's happening in the background of like another story. Right. And sort of giving like opinions about what's going on kind of while this main story is going on. I think there's, there's probably ways to do it if you have to, but I don't think you have to, (laughs) I think it's probably okay just to not, just to not address it for a while. Um, But just to make this conversation actually feel like not a tangent, I think this is very closely related to why this film was made. So do y'all know, uh, have you all ever read or come across any excerpts from the Kafka story beyond the law? I have not. Nope. So I'm just going to read like two sentences out that I kind of, I did a little bit of paraphrasing, but I put this together just because I thought it was very interesting. So there's a, um, um, courtroom, I guess, debate going on in, in one of Kafka's novels. And this section is called before, before the law. And it, and it says, um, in, a, in a dialogue betwe- between someone upholding the law and someone looking to sort of understand the law, 
Lies and deceit cover every discussion and interaction between both people, between the person who's in the law and the person looking to like learn about the law. It becomes impossible to separate the career advancement, sense of duty, and interpretation of the law from the lawkeeper, because they are all like, these are biases the lawkeeper has, and impossible to understand if the citizen is ultimately superior or in deference to the lawkeeper. Right, because there's this whole thing about like the the police are there strictly to protect the citizens. So in that way, like the citizens actually are superior, right? And the way the story plays out, <clears throat> there's like this this person coming in to inquire about the law is uh, is told that if they they are allowed past this door, there's like a gatekeeper essentially, and they they are allowed past this door. But if they get past there, each subsequent door is held by a stricter and stricter gatekeeper, and like there's, it, it becomes, you know, it's going to be impossible to get to the center to really learn about the law. And what you learn as the story goes on is that the person who's the gatekeeper, they're kind of doing some interpretation. They don't actually know that much about what's beyond that door. Um, but they're kind of given like a specific set of instructions just to try to keep people out. And as the, anyway, so it, it's just this interesting kind of interplay between the person upholding the law and the citizen where you realize that they're both acting on their own set of opinions and beliefs without evidence or, or complete facts and their own interpretations of what they're hearing. Um, and that was like the foundation for, if you saw that, I think it was near the end of the movie, there was a quote from uh, the this this movie, that's what turned me on to it, or from this novel, that's what turned me oh, on. Oh, I didn't realize that's where it was from. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so I started reading it and I thought it was very interesting to, to kind of see that like it was all about perception and interpretation. Um, and I think that the woman kind of represents somebody who was almost like outside of the situation. Like she was just kind of like a, calling it as she saw it. Like she was maybe the only honest one, even in all her eccentricities and kind of abuse she was maybe the most honest one and everybody else in that story was kind of playing a role playing you know playing a part um so anyways i i, I would see that would be one compelling reason why they'd want to remake it maybe there's a slightly different retelling of you know kafka's vision um i don't think you can make a 90 minute movie of a gate a conversation between somebody at a gate <laughs> and someone. No, it probably would. It's probably better on the written word than it would be <laughs> on the screen. <laughs> Though I like the movie Lock, and that's just a guy sitting in his car talking on the phone. So who knows? <laughs> yeah. But anyways, um, there's a little bit of a you know kind of a deeper foundation, I think, for for what was the what prompted this story, and or at least what you know what made um, director Petrie decide to include that quote, maybe for some context. Well, law is kind of an interesting concept in general. Uh, like you were kind of talking about, there's these biases and there's these um, roles, even, I don't know if that's the exact word you use, but there's roles we all play, like how citizens view law and how law keepers or judges or lawyers, how they view the law. It's kind of like this idea when I was taking law classes, is the hardest concept to kind of wrap your head around is the difference between moral guilt and legal guilt. The idea that, for instance, O.J. Simpson, let's just, you know, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to put a hot take out here. I think morally he's guilty. And so did the civil court. However, legally, he's innocent because 
we we couldn't establish an actual event that happened. There is, in every sense of the word, we can talk about all day how he killed Nicole Simpson, but at the end of the day, he's an innocent person or was until he did armed robbery and was found guilty for that. But it's that sort of concept that a lot of people struggle with, this idea that, oh, well, like a defense attorney's trying to get their scumbag um, a defendant off, and the real thing is they're trying to do what's right by that person because that person is truly that innocence and that and, and this is just an example of a disconnect mm-hmm. that people have in general compared to people in the system and it's that idea should the citizens warp that system to better you know because they're the ones that end up on trial so it's like it, it, there's always this push and this pull uh, and i'm probably going to go off on tangent because i'm trying to oversimplify a lot of things we did in law school well not law school but my law classes and um yeah it, it's an interesting dichotomy that really comes out of it. Um, and I think that, yeah, now that you mentioned that, I think that is kind of an interesting way to look at it by, you know, this film kind of did it just from the police standpoint and kind of their weird relationship as in-betweeners. Like, yeah, there, there's the, uh, the citizens and the law and they're kind of right dab in the middle. Yeah. I mean, would people sign up for, to be a law, you know, well, I was going to say lawman, but law person, uh, yeah. law, you know, protector of the law, they do declare an oath of servant, right, to be a servant to the public, right? So right. There, that, that is how it starts. Just like a doctor takes a Hippocratic oath, like there's a similar oath for police force, right? And and I think that that's, that shouldn't be lost. Like that is, the intent is, is there and it's true. And um, I, yeah, anyways, there's I've, I've, I know several police uh uh, people on the police force, so I'm tempted to go on a, a deep tangent here, but the job gets tough in in the day-to-day of if you're serving the same area and you see the same type of people day in and day out, when there's like one or two people that are unique from the same type of people you're seeing day in and day out, and they share you know eight of the 10 characteristics of people that you're arresting every day, but the two that are different make them innocent. Like it's, it just becomes, over time, it becomes muddy to, to, to make that distinction, you know, quickly. Well, I, I'm I'm not gonna um, say profiling. You know, I'm not gonna be here to support it. But it's kind of natural for people. We're pattern recognizers, just naturally. We we see things like, well, I've seen this before. I do this before. So therefore, it's true, even if it's not. Then that's I think that's a lot of the biases you're talking about. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering if we're going too deep into this. Um, <laughs> maybe we are. Um, it's an interesting perspective from a police force, which might be the one institution where you can literally be above the law because you're the ones hired to protect it, right? And right. Yeah, there's a trust that you're supposed to have there. Yeah, yeah, right. And it's an it's a scary kind of thought to think that there is an, an institutional block to being to holding these these protectors of the law of the same standard as citizens. Well, it's like uh, Alan Moore who watches the Watchmen sort of idea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Welcome back to Collection Corner. Uh, this week, as I'm just going to say is normal now, <laughs> we have uh, incredible guests who are breaking off and doing their own thing and, and, and helping the world discover some very unique uh, Asian horror and exploitation films. Uh, Logan and Sam are the founders of Error 4444. They get into the meaning of the name. They get into kind of how they chose the films that they're not only putting out first, 
um, but also what are the, what's coming up in their collection. And really, it just became kind of a fun, you know, session to talk about some of the, the, the darker and crazier side of cinema from people that are genuinely just cinema fans and, and movie fans and huge collectors. And I really enjoyed it. And, and Zach was nice enough to join in the conversation. And I think it's, uh, it, was a, it was a really fun one. And I hope we get them back on after they have, uh, I think we agreed on 10 releases. They'll come back on. I hope that happens. So let's, let's listen to uh, Era 4444. Uh, okay, so uh, the co-founders of Error 4444 are here today, Logan and Sam. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I really appreciate you making some time. And we're actually recording this at night, so thanks for taking up your uh, your evening here to, uh, to, to chat with us. Um, we were talking, uh, you know, I think a little bit before we kind of joined, but, but Zach and I are big collectors and um, separately, kind of found out a little bit about Era 4444 uh, and uh, pre-ordered y'all's first release, Anatomia Extinction. So we're excited for that to drop. That's coming in uh, this month, right? Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, by the end of the month. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So one of the things that we're always, I'm always interested, you know, a lot of um, Blu-ray kind of distribution houses and different labels are having some production delays uh, and, and it's kind of a stressful time to be putting out physical media a little bit. Have you all been uh, lucky so far? Kind of knock on wood, Is, are things going okay for y'all first release? Logan, you wanna address that? <laughs> um, yeah, everything's going well so far. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of back and forth with manufacturers and, and things can get delayed, but um, I think the biggest hurdle that we've had is just making sure that the release is region free and making sure that the manufacturer understands that stuff like that more technical side of things and i guess also the fact that everything that we have on the blu-ray includes some type of subtitling so it needs to make sure that we we have that in check and in line pretty much Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's it. so that's kind of like this, what's going on behind the scenes. Um, yeah. but at least it's not delays. That's great. And we don't even have to talk anymore about it. I don't want to jinx it, but that's that's fantastic <laughs> to hear. Um, so how did y'all come up? I, just based on the website, I, you know, the big cartel site that I think y'all set up is primarily where I've kind of read about y'all. And um, it seems that you have a big focus in kind of Japanese uh, horror and genre films. Is that right for, for the label? Or Asian, no. Asian, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Just like I would say, like no, no, no. I mean, uh, it's. I think it's. We love Japanese films, no doubt. Like, uh, we we love them. I we definitely want to. I guess just be clear with like everyone and like Japanese films are not the only films we will release. We love all Asian, you know, uh, cinema and like just genre cinema in general. I mean, we have our preferences. <clears throat> I think like uh, me personally, like I got into like Asian cinema through Japanese stuff, but um. Um, my my big passion is kind of trying to get uh, Hong Kong uh, cinema more at the front. <laughs> so like, I mean, no, but I, we also like, you know, we're looking at films from Vietnam. We're looking at films from like South Korea, you know, like a lot of places, like all of Asia, we want to include all of Asia. So, you know, uh, that's definitely something we want to put out there. <clears throat> it's just been easiest for us to start with Japanese cinema, like to get Japanese films is, it's been much easier, but now we're moving towards that we have like some Taiwan films and some Chinese, the Hong Kong films that we're putting out. So um, have you all spent any time in like living in Southeast Asia or where does this interest uh, come from? Is it just, yeah. Sam? Uh, no, I mean, I haven't, <clears throat> I haven't lived in uh, Asia myself, but I've gone, uh, I have like 
my my girlfriend she is from taiwan so i've gone there several times spent a lot of time there haven't lived there for like a year or anything just like more like vacation stuff um but um i haven't done anything like i guess like professionally like anything for like the company no not as of as of yet no <laughs> but um you know uh definitely i guess uh my appreciation though for the films and like the, like just uh asian pop culture in general um was i it stemmed from like a young age i think a lot of people you know they start out with like whatever it may be like whether it's like very simple and basic stuff like for example anime whether it's like dragon ball z or like uh, miyazaki films or jackie chan whatever you know like something that has always transcended across the whole world mm -hmm. um you know for me it was probably bruce lee <clears throat> and jackie chan so you know through there like you know you then you start talking we could talk about lots of things like food and everything you know everything having to do with like asian culture in general um but no i have not lived in asia i would love to spend like years there i think i would love to you said you were you went to taipei a few times or taipei, guess... taipei taiwan yeah yeah i've been there like i think three separate times yeah and i've been in japan once but only for a week was the longest i've been there I know that uh, I have a, a friend who's from Taipei and she is convinced that they have the best fruit, street food and like kind of best food. I haven't been across the world, but I would argue uh, is similarly, but with some ignorance because I haven't been around the world. So I can't say, you know, I can't say for sure. So <clears throat> yeah, she's very passionate about it. That's cool. And so uh, Logan, do you share a similar passion for kind of Asian horror and, and genre films or, or what's, what's your, what's your passion then? I'm just as a fanatic as Sam is, you know, with, Asian films and I'm also like I've been to China I've been to many parts of China I haven't been to Taiwan yet but I've been to you know Chongqing and I've been to Shanghai and I've been to Beijing and you know I also have a girlfriend in China so I spend a lot of time there as well I'd love to live you know there or be in you know some place like Japan I'd love to go to Japan I didn't even know Sam went you went for a week in Japan I didn't know you were in Japan <laughs> I've told you I've told you I don't think you did um so y'all were uh, y'all are now out of film school right mm -hmm. and you decided the first thing you wanted to do was start a blu-ray <laughs> distribution company <laughs> kind of yeah we, we had talked about it as we were in film school together for a while and we just kind of joked around about it and then those jokes kind of kind of became real yeah <laughs> spent more time on it and started spending money on it and stuff and it just made sense you know we felt like there was a, a market that needed to be cornered with asian films in, in america you know and so we just thought we'd give it a shot give it a try i feel like i, I was a uh, i was in university kind of in the heyday of sort of um there was a, like 2000 2005 there was a ton especially in dallas there was uh i forget the number or something like 25 independent screens like art house screens oh, around wow. the city and so like every week we had like, um, you know, like a Takashi Miike film I was talking earlier, like, or there was uh, some, you know, anyways, like a, Chan, uh, a Park Chan-wook film or like there was something coming in from Asia that was playing in like one of the screens every week. So I kind of developed a love for, for the cinema from that part of the world. And then I grew up in Indonesia. And so like there's not, people don't really know about that film scene, but there's some wild stuff oh, that's yeah. been made there over the years. Um, so anyways, maybe one day there's, maybe there'll be an independent uh, Indonesian section from uh, era 44, 44. Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we would love that. 
Um, so after the first release, what are y'all kind of working on? Is there, is there any more you can talk about? Like what else is coming up for y'all? So we, we don't exactly have the release dates in, in place yet, but we're working on a variety of titles at once. We're working on um, Funky Forest and Warped Forest. Um, Shuni, it's three directors for Funky Forest. Uh, Shunichiro Miki directed both Funky Forest and Warped Forest. Um, so we're working on those together with the three directors. We're, and also Third Window um, from the UK will be releasing that there. And we're releasing um, the version in the US and Canada. Um, and then we just announced or teased two titles yesterday. Sam, if you can, if you wanna. Uh, so yeah, the next ones are both like kind of Hong Kong, I believe also uh, joint Taiwanese productions. I think both are like- The two, I think you're right. Right, I think both of them are. Um, so a lot of people, uh, I don't want to out, outright say the names. Um, people are guessing them. I will say people are guessing correctly. Um, but uh, just to to keep some of that uh, mysteriousness, I guess I don't want to mention them, but people consider them category three films, which is something that, you know, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, um, but if if you are like, oh, so I guess I can explain really quickly. Yeah, um so category three is kind of it's so in Hong Kong. Um, have you guys seen a film called Men Behind the Sun or heard? Of I it? have. OK, there we go. So, oh, OK. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. There we go. So Men Behind the Sun is like kind of the first um, film to receive a rating. And that certificate was category three. And that's how they to, to this day in Hong Kong, they rate their movies on categories. Um, so you have like category one, category two, and then within that they have subcategories. So it's a like category two B and category three is essentially the NC 17 rating of Hong Kong. Um, so you can already imagine, you know, what can be in those films. Um, and man behind the sun was the one that set the precedent, but there before that, which two of the, the two films that we announced came before man behind the sun. And there were already a kind of a variety of uh, if you want to call them extreme or just like really crazy exploitation or horror films in Hong Kong before Men Behind the Sun. Um, so sometimes people say, call them Cat 3s. I don't really have a problem with it for just the sake of um, uh, what's it called? I guess being accurate. I wanted we wanted to say like when we're, we were mentioning the hints, we just wanted to say proto Cat 3s because technically they never received that rating at that time so you know we just kind of wanted to stay true so that also some of the older older people who've been who've been in that you know for years before even we have so that they don't get on our cases about it either because we don't uh want to upset anyone <laughs> yeah uh, sure. yeah so you know but yeah category threes um that's kind of like i've i've within the past like two two three years i've kind of submerged myself in that subgenre at this point it's a subgenre the rating that so when you hear people ever mention a cat 3 film that's what they're talking about and it's become in the in like kind of to western audiences like uh who are who are into like a more extreme asian cinema or whatever it's kind of become um a subgenre of its own uh people have like this endearing uh like uh i guess way of talking about them that's why that when someone says cat 3 you kind of think of exploitation horror and stuff from hong kong and like that golden age was during the 90s so, you know, we hope to get to some of those films as well. Um, but again, these two that we hinted at are proto Cat 3s. They came before Men Behind the Sun. So, you know, just just out of, out of what I've told you, that's that's kind of how we're labeling them. But we can definitely get into that more. I mean, uh, so, yeah. 
just uh, for comparison, when you talk about uh, NC-17 and Category 3, yeah, is it kind of like it is in the U.S. as well, where NC-17 has barely any screens that can show it, or are they a little bit more open to show those Category 3s? I'm, I'm happy you asked me that, um, because they're they're different um in uh again i'm not i want to give a disclaimer i'm not an expert uh i like i really do love them and i i want to become an expert but i'm not but from what i do know um the so cat category three and nc17 they differ in some ways because in category three films uh you're not going to really see penetration like in nc17 that's that's possible you know like it's all like, nc17 is pretty much x rating category three is like nc17 slash x rating except you're not really going to see anything that crazy animal cruelties on the table you know there's still a lot of crazy stuff that you'll see um but it's mainly like crazy violence like shocking violence and obviously sleazy like sex scenes nude scenes in terms of uh mainstream viability and i guess commercial commercial success a lot of cat three films they pumped them out in hong kong in uh, like after men behind the sun and in the 90s which is kind of like what people consider the golden age or like that that era where like there was like a lot of like crazy cat three films and those some of those films even earned uh critical praise um there's one for example unearth films put it out recently i don't know if you guys have maybe have seen it or even uh maybe purchased it it's called the untold story that was like it's like one of the biggest ones um and even the actor there he won the equivalent of a Hong Kong Oscar at that time, which is 93. I yeah, Untold Story came out in 93. So, um, you know, some of them really did have an impact in terms of like, just even critically. Um, but I, I think we treat, I think they treated uh, them differently over there. They treated them differently, not all of them. Um, I'm not going to say that I think like everyone was going to watch these movies, but I think they might've had more like to your question again, um, they might have had more success than NC-17 movies maybe did during, I guess, whatever time there were more of them. Um, I mean, nowadays, those types of movies would only be shown at what art house theaters, you know, but, you know, so and it depending on what they are. I mean, John Waters is a good example, <laughs> but, um, you know, so, yeah, I hope Man, that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Thank you. That's cool. Uh, Man Behind the Sun came out in like kind of late 80s. Is that right? Ish, that time frame? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I believe it's mid to late 80s um, okay. and so yeah. the two that you're coming uh, and again I won't ask any more details but the two that you're producing are from before that before that yeah mm -hmm. so uh, I'm kind of intrigued and are, is there an element of restoration to what you're doing as well are you having to restore these prints yes yeah we're, we're doing uh, for these two it'll be 2k restorations um, cleaning up audio cleaning up everything that kind of thing and uh, we even had a little bit of uh, restoration with the first film. And even with Funky Forest and War Forest, we're still like, we have to like put it into like HD, like with like upscale it or like bring it up to like an HD format. So with, in, with those two films, the directors themselves are handling all that. They're, they're doing it with, with the, these two Proto-Cat 3 films. It's like the original production company that that put it out there they're handling that and then we're we're like fitting the bill for it you know that kind of thing oh that's nice but it's not something you personally have to kind of like manage and do we we've been open for it and we've we've been interested in that as well but uh certain places are are more open to it other places they they don't feel as comfortable sending an original print you know mailing it yep. to the west from you know somewhere or something like that 
so we can get a copy of a print mail to us. There, there's like another film that we're thinking about doing that for getting like a copy of a print made and then mailed to us. But then it's tricky because like some of these prints, like there's there's a print for a film that I'm I'm really interested in. And, but like the subtitles are burned into the print. So it's like a, it's like a, something that we have to kind of work around or figure out if there's a way around it. And Sam and I, we watched, there was some kind of special feature we watched for some Criterion film once. I think it's, yeah. was it called Nonstop? What is it called? Or It's like one of the recent noirs they released. So or like, Detour. Detour, yeah. yeah. And it was something like they took these, they had like maybe two prints. One of the prints had this like burned in sub at the bottom. The other print was shittier looking, but didn't have the sub. So they were able to kind of like match them together mm-hmm. or something and eliminate mm-hmm. the subtitle that way. It was pretty interesting. So we're thinking maybe there may be a way to do that with, with this particular film. Um, um, th- there's an interesting, the very first interview that we had lined up was with this company called Arbelos. Are you familiar with them, Arbelos Films? And um, anyways, they, they're a production company as well as a restoration company. And then uh, we were talking to some two, two of the members that had split off and, and found their own company that's gonna start putting stuff out later in 2021. It's called Deaf Crocodile. But the reason I bring it up is they had, uh, the, there's a Japanese film actually, an animated film called Belladonna of Sadness. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And the print that they had, there was like this scene in the middle that had the same thing. The subtitles were burned in. And they had to, oh, no, no, there was a whole section that was lost. And the only copy they found was in Belgium and the subtitles were burned in French. Uh, and they were like, Ugh. and so there was this interesting story about how they kind of, they got like lucky because that one particular sequence was like running in a loop where the subtitles were going. So they, they only had to kind of like color fix like a small segment and then they could just kind of like loop it. So it didn't take the whole thing. But uh, seeing, and, seeing the movie, that kind of makes sense. The, like, the looping that you mentioned. Have you seen the movie? Yeah, I've seen the movie. Yeah, it's devastating. Like, it's not a horror movie, but like, it's a, it is rough. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a rough watch. Yeah. Um, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So y'all, so y'all are working with the the rights holders here, and like, you're now you're kind of negotiating like the who's going to take care of the restoration. Um, either way, they're happy to have you pay the bill for it. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then I'm, I'm assuming there's going to be a lot of special features as well. So are you doing that all remote as well? Yeah, yeah. With with Anatomy Extinction, we collaborated with um, Yoshihiro Nishimura. And he was, I mean, because he's an active filmmaker, he was able to shoot everything on his own terms. And he has like a nice space. I don't know if it's like a space or if it's like a museum. He has all his like his artwork in the background. And so you'll see it if like you said you pre-ordered so you'll see it on the special features like with all his artwork everywhere it's pretty cool looking um and then with funky and warped the same thing we're working with the directors so we have all the old features from the old dvd of funky that are being ported over plus some extra features that never made it onto the dvd plus like new stuff that they're calling together and editing together for us and then new stuff that we're like getting made for the release so it's like a, it's a shit ton of feature it's yeah. so much that we we're like worrying that it, we're not even sure if it's going to fit on the blu-rays like we're thinking <laughs> yeah of like a box set so it fits on like three blu-rays it's so much stuff wow. it's um, just out of curiosity how does the um, how does quality check kind of work when you guys have like a pressed finished disc Especially when, you know, you've had incidents like Arrow recently had their issue with Donnie Darko, you know, Lorber had their issue with uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. So 
what is the process of making sure that these special features work <laughs> as intended? Is there a process for that? No, there, yeah, there absolutely is a process. And it's funny that you mentioned, cause we're actually dealing with that process right now for Anatomia. Um, with the manufacturer that we're working with currently, it starts off where you get like a BDR. It's not an actual press disc. Mm -hmm. It's like kind of like a test burned Blu-ray. And then from that you have to sort of um, clear everything on there, clear if there's any, like for instance, I mean, I, I guess we can talk like our, the BDR that we received, the, the initial one, it wasn't, it wasn't right. There was things wrong with it. It was missing like subtitles for special features, which is not good at all. So, but I guess that that's why they have this in place so that mm -hmm. you check it out and then tell them and then they'll fix it. But yeah, so it's, it's like that they send you a BDR. They just sent us a second BDR. I received it today in the mail. So I got to check that out and, and make sure the quality is right. And then from there we move on once every, everything's like everyone's satisfied. Um, and then they'll send us a pressed one, I guess, cause that costs more. They won't send, they won't send that right. one first. And then, you know, once we get that, then we can approve that and then, and then move on to the final stuff. It, it's a bit of a process and just making sure that they understand it's mostly for us. It's just making sure they understand the region ABC thing is what yeah. recently yeah. has, um, yeah, it's been like a little tricky with the person we're dealing with one-on-one. -on -one. Do you have to negotiate that? Because I know uh, it seems like some there's a contract like, yeah, you can't do certain regions. Is that up to, I guess, the rights holder in this case? Right. Yeah. So that that's something that you would negotiate with the rights holder, the filmmaker or, you know, whichever company has it. And then um, it, it like for Funky and Warped, we've been working on that since I would say. October of last year so it's been a while in the making um so I don't I don't know if we were the first on the scene I like to think that we were on the scene <laughs> and, and then third window and, and French company was what's her name spectrum spectrum yeah yeah I think like they came in as well but either way we, we all kind of like came together and so like with that it's like since there are already other companies involved we we know for a fact we can't have it be region free you know because mm -hmm. windows involved and such but um, with some of the other titles, like the, the two that we just announced recently, but haven't directly said their names, those, those two like will be region free because we've, we went out of our way to, to seek out those titles specifically and to, to kind of pull them up from the ground. And, and so when, when we made the uh, contract, we kind of, uh, we, we, we did all that ourselves. So we know that we, we control that, like all the, regions in that way okay sometimes you do sometimes you don't it, it just right depends. it just depends really you can you can say like you want it all um but then there might be another company that's already negotiating for it as well some of the yeah. we've been going after some films here and we find out that there are other other north american companies that are that are trying to get the same film we're like oh god and it's like kind of this race to get it like there are two other films that we want next Sam really wants them. They're like his favorite film of all time. One of them. We really want to get those. We're very close to getting those, but it's, uh, we know that there's another company that's gunning for it. And then there's another one that's the same thing. And I'm trying, I'm trying to get them as, as quickly as possible, but it's, you know, it's money and time and emailing communication. It's, it's a lot of work. Completely unrelated. Sam, what is your favorite movie? <laughs> 
I feel like me saying this, I sound so basic, but I it is it's Scarface. <laughs> <laughs> I think Zach was trying to back into what the movie release was gonna yeah, be. I think that's- <laughs> no, no, it's not it's not that. Yeah, yeah, it's not. It's, I mean, but that is uh, definitely up there. <laughs> so are y'all collectors yourselves? Yeah, 100 percent Yeah. <laughs> uh is there a particular I mean, I, obviously you collect cat three for what, at least what's available, Sam. Uh, beyond that, is there is there anything else that like what kind of stuff do y'all collect? Um, either either labels or just genre or like whatever. Like what what do y'all collect the most? Logan, you go first. I mean, I collect. I mean, you could probably see. I got like there's like a stack of movies on this on this. Table. It's all black over there, man. I can't see anything. <laughs> um, I collect like a bit of everything. I I collect a lot of like anything gory, anything with decapitations. I love 80s slasher films. I love uh. I collect pretty much any any label. I think I collect every label. I think I have at least something from every label on the market, pretty much, you know, from Arrow, Eureka, 88 Films, SRS Cinema, um, you know, Vinegar Syndrome. I mean, pretty much everything, you know, I have, you know, I collect a lot and it's not, it's not just Asian stuff, but I do, I do like to collect a lot of Asian stuff. There's something like I'm like, feels good to, to watch these films you know I, I just I have a, I have a passion for these films so I, I try to grab as much as I can and collect as much as I can and they're also not as readily available so it feels like when I get one it's more coveted than when I get something that I can just get down at the store or like mm-hmm. a Walmart or something sure so anyway Sam Sam's gonna go crazy <laughs> no i mean um it's it's kind of similar to, to logan i mean just to add to that like a, in terms of the variety of like labels boutique labels yeah everything uh from the biggest ones to the smallest ones even i want to also kind of like uh mention like a lot of independent filmmakers i like buying direct from filmmakers themselves who are like working on no budget micro budget shoestring budgets you know um i like finding some of those things like recently there's a I forget i'm i'm sometimes really bad with memorizing filmmakers names um there's this one guy who he released something uh ridiculous the title it's called amityville vibrator uh basically his his own sequel like a spin-off sequel of the amityville movies and i had to buy it i saw the the i think the the cover art he he designed them you know it's like they're like paper sleeves you know like it's like very very um you know diy stuff which is why i appreciate it so yeah, you know, like things like that. I, I love finding that stuff on Instagram. Instagram is a big place where like, you know, like collectors and stuff get together and showcase their stuff. Filmmakers, like independent filmmakers, like uh, we're talking like underground horror filmmakers get on there and they sell their own stuff. You know, it's it's fun. And um, getting to kind of see uh, or talk to other collectors is kind of what inspires me and what makes me keep going because that's also how I've gotten into other films. Um, because like, I think it's it's, one good to have an open mind just even as a collector but as a movie watcher too because i don't want to i don't ever like to act like i'm like the authority on a certain movie or whatever so when i learn more um that also means there's another whole another thing to collect you know or a whole like other subgenres or whatever um so yeah no but uh definitely i think again to add to logan's thing with the asian films there's something really cool about uh buying these films and we're talking about like from their native countries too, like their native releases. Like a lot of the stuff I've been buying recently is from Hong Kong. Um, they're DVDs that have been unfortunately um, out of print for a long time or 
we don't know when they'll get Blu-rays, uh, you know, so it, it feels good to sometimes go after these, even though we're neglecting newer boutique label releases. Um, but I think that's like the passion and, you know, of, uh, and the kind of one of the uh, challenges of collecting, because you have to, you don't have the money for everything. I mean, I, we're not rich, so, <laughs> you know, so going after the stuff we want to see the most, that's like kind of, at least for us, our priority. Um, but uh, yeah, that's just, no, I mean, we could talk about collecting forever, man. <laughs> like <laughs> speaking of uh, foreign editions zach do you want to talk about your mandy your hunt for the mandy box oh yeah i uh i got <laughs> i'm trying to think where it was from it was from germany um oh, okay. and it's a huge like has a vinyl record in it it's got like four blu-rays in I it. Know. I, I think kamichi dvd did it i could mm-hmm. be wrong about the label itself but it's like my favorite edition paid way too much money for it, <laughs> but i love it we we've all we've all been there, man. Been there. No, I know the edition you're talking about. It's a crazy edition. It's a crazy edition. I've seen it. Zach, is there anything else you kind of wanted to ask? Or I feel like we covered a lot from the production side. Covered future releases. Covered y'all's passion for collecting. I'm trying to think if there's any topics that that I'm not, not thinking of. I, I guess I have two. Um, <laughs> the first one is is can you at least hint to me if I'm ever going to be able to get rid of my Region B of Dream Home? <laughs> that's what we've actually already reached out about we've actually oh okay already contacted a company about that song because we, we we own the region b blu-rays ourselves and, and we wanted to get a blu-ray here um we can should we just say whatever what yeah. what deal go ahead i can't we we reached out and if i remember correctly it's isn't it on hold or something? I think something like that. I don't. Uh, it was something a little like uh, not like, not too like clear. It's, it's on hold for like another year or two, right? Something. Some, like something like that. Something it was like a little that. odd when we found the out. The way I was I was counting because like uh, you know usually when somebody releases a film or whatever you have about uh, it could be like between seven. It could be well it could be two to five years or it could be seven years. Seven years seven to ten is more standard. For someone to have the rights to it so when the dvd was released here i was counting you know forward i thought this year would be the year but i think i think it might be next year or a year after mm-hmm. so right now it's it's still in a limbo period so hopefully yeah you would like to is would be the answer i guess yeah, yeah. that'd be awesome uh, i love that movie so i heard you guys were doing like i think it's category three and then yeah, when I yeah. looked it up just a few minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. That's a modern Cat 3. That's like one of the, I think like a lot of the, even the old old heads <laughs> who've like uh, been watching stuff from the 90s. Uh, they, a lot of people respect that movie. Like it's, no, that movie's great. That's like one of the, like, I think one of my, my favorite like modern horror movies within like the, from the past decade. I think it's brilliant. Oh, I do too. I think it's great. Um, and I guess the only other question that I could think of right off, and this may be on your website and I may have just missed it. So why for 4444 <laughs> i think logan can explain this one well <laughs> i think you were good at explaining it when earlier no i just think you're good at explaining it okay um four <laughs> yeah yeah perfect yeah yeah there we go i think there that explained it all there we go like um so like in in asian countries uh four is like it's seen as like having bad luck like how 13 here is like a bad luck number in uh 
many Asian countries, uh, like a level floor in a hotel, they, they'll skip that number, you know, because it's just, it has negative connotations. It's like a, you know, it has bad like vibes and stuff. So we thought like four would be a nice number. And then we kind of replicate the four as it's just like, it represents different parts of Asia, you know? So like originally when we had it, we had like, um, we had like a, we had error and then we had uh, four fours, but they were from different parts. Like we had a four in, in Korean and a four in, in Chinese and four in Japanese and a four in like Thai or something like that. So it was like, you know, that's what it's like more meant to represent kind of like we're showing off these kind of like films that that have been locked away and, and they're more more like horror centric but you know we're open to like all different types of films but yeah stuff like that yeah really quickly just to chime in about the like the the whole air thing was just like us playing around it was like it's like a really cheesy thing right. where um yeah like uh we were like thinking of um in pat like fucking old ass uh microsoft computers were like uh windows computers where you would get the air i would say like air, uh, air code, 404. 404. 404 yeah yeah so like we like messed around and we're like which is all the bad luck stuff what's all the like bad stuff that you get so you know air yeah, 444 yeah. so you that know. all paired together we thought was a cool like little thing mm-hmm. oh that's awesome that's really cool thank you thank you um, so yeah, the one other thing I'm thinking of is on the website right now, it shows as of May, what are we at? Fifth? Oh, Cinco de Mayo, of course. So as of today, uh, when we're recording, there's oh, just like 80% sold out, right? Ahead of release. We're, we're at, I think we're at 86%, but I have not updated it quite yet. Cause you know, I just was waiting, you know, to maybe get to the 90 and then I would probably update it. Yeah. Yeah. We're at 86% sold out, which is cool. This is awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I was going to ask, like, if you have the rights for, like, you don't have to, like, get into it, but if you have the rights, again, for that seven to 10-year kind of time frame, um, do you, you know, uh, one of the things I thought was really interesting about, um, uh, what's the name of the company? Cauldron Films. Are you all familiar with them? Kind of a newer mm-hmm. label as well? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So they did like the slipcover limited edition and they did like the standard edition and they did like the VHS box and then yeah. they're going to do like, right. So they're getting really creative with like the packaging and stuff. Are y'all going to kind of do some stuff like that? Like are y'all going to do multiple editions? We've, we've discussed, uh, we've definitely discussed having a standard edition of our releases down the line. It, it really depends on like how quick they sell, if they sell that kind of thing. And then I know for Anatomia, Sam and I had like some like, ideas for the future possibly if we could you know do some stuff future with Yoshihiro that we could pair mm. that we would we would do like a bigger cooler thing but uh that's all tentative I guess but Yoshihiro is like he's 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 a dream so like working with him has all been great and we'd love to work with him in the future too so just mat- just a matter of time when things get finished and yeah Fingers crossed on Tokyo Gore Police getting a release from now. <laughs> yeah. uh, you don't have to comment, but uh, that'd be awesome. Um, yeah. uh, cool. Well, uh, it, does that include theatrical rights, or is that a totally different ballgame altogether? Some do, some don't. So for Ana- Anatomia, we have we do have theatrical rights, and we were we were talking to uh, AGFA about um, like I don't know what the what the word would be, but kind of like you know handing it off to them like facilitating and, it i guess yeah, facilitating and then they would um put it in or like offer it to the many uh theaters chains that they're you know in in the business with like alamo etc so mm-hmm. that funky forest work for us will will more than likely 
like facilitate with them. Some of the other ones we don't, but you know, it, it just it just depends. You know, some some companies want if you're working with a company, they typically want more money when you when you ask for things like that. If you're working like percentages with, or whatever. Yeah. So it's it's a lot, it's a lot harder to, you know, it's more gutting, especially in the current climate, you know, you know, if we if we can just get the video rights and if you know, getting the theatrical rights is more, then we might just, you know, put that yeah. because it's people aren't going to the movies as much at this current point in time. So as a super, money thing, it's probably better to wait. Super interesting. Um, I guess the only other question I have on my mind then is just, you know, uh, just from a collector's perspective, are these going to be spine numbered? Or are they uh, you read my mind. I was going to ask that. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> How are you all doing that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were going to have the spine uh, numbered. I we, we That's something we talked about. At, we we really spent like a, like, I think some of like our longest nights were literally talking about the packaging because because that's really though like if you think about it like a lot of these companies that's how they grab people you know and that's the formula like it's not I mean the thing that we're not going to mention some of the companies but we we there's still nights now where we like are fucking pissed off at some companies because we're like you guys are packaging like shit and it's beautiful though you know what i'm saying now i'm not saying i don't own shit i own a bunch of trash you know and i love it <laughs> but you know like it's just it's sometimes it makes me upset too because i'm like um you know with the films we're going to release uh, some people view them as trash but at least logan and me we kind of our mission is to we want to release at least the films that you know we think there's like some like i don't know i guess merit or something like something that we find that we can like we could argue or we could like uh, go and, and say like you know this is something that needs to be seen this needs to be restored and saved you know so um that's kind of how we're going about it but obviously the collectors inside us and like the way we kind of are uh privy to the community and like what people want we want it to look like beautiful we want you know that's why the artwork and everything we spent a lot of time with our like you know uh the artist who was working with us who was collaborating with us and everything and the spine again like being numbered just thinking about the future if we last you know we were like yeah we would love to have like a one through however many you know and keeping also the native um language characters like japanese characters going to be like with alongside with anatomic extinction right afterwards going to be the japanese characters of the movie the mm -hmm. title so we want to keep it nice you know uh keep it kind of like taking cues from like some other companies too obviously like that have been in the game longer than us that we admire as well so you know there's a there's definitely like a little bit of like inspiration coming from other companies for sure because we you know we love we love a lot of these companies so that's great well this is going to drop um just look i just look at the calendar really fast this is going to drop on may 21st uh will anatomia be out at that point or not yet is it coming <laughs> a little bit after that checking the calendar checking the checking is uh Oh, I don't mean that. Okay. Anyways, if it's after, that's, that's totally fine. I was just wondering um, if, if people were going to be able to see it by then or not. But anyways, so right around the time this drops, uh, Anatomia will be coming out within like the next week or something. So uh, for anybody that hears this uh, and, and doesn't have it yet, um, anything else that you want people just to take away about Air 4444? Like just like a, you know, I don't know, like a sentence or, or like a short, you know, anything else that you want people to kind of remember or just like, you know, parting words to anyone who's listening or out the label and y'all's mission? Sam? It's trying to keep it short. It's not my, my forte. <laughs> I, I, I mean, no, I mean, we, you know, we want to just like, 
we want to try to hit like every single um i guess interested like uh i guess i guess subgenre within like you know what like cult just like uh, you know horror exploitation we want to try to hit everything we want to have like something for everyone like if somebody doesn't enjoy one release we want to try to have something and the next release that everyone else can enjoy i mean you know uh we we wanted we want to try to have action horror exploitation you know uh, more weird stuff or even down to do like comedies and uh, you know so we're not just closed-minded it's not just going to be like pure exploitation or pure horror we want to try to do everything so you know yeah we're trying to keep it fresh trying to like pick different things like with anatomia it's like more of like a sci-fi horror type thing and funky and warped is more cult comedy weird and then the next two titles are more i guess they're more uh exploitation exploitation <laughs> i guess is what they would be in some some ways they're ex- like extremely exploited exploitive in certain ways so I, we know that some people are not into that kind of thing. So, you know, we, but we want to cater to everybody. We want to like try to do it. And if we're, if we're long running, if we can do it for a while, then we'll, we'll try to get as much as of everything as possible and try to make everyone happy, you know? Awesome. Well, after you get 10 releases, 15 releases under your belt, you all keep coming back and talking about the journey of it. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. 100%. No, thank you guys for everything. You guys, you know, it's easy talking to you guys. I appreciate it. You know? You guys are cool. That's our that's our slogan. <laughs> We're cool. <laughs> Short and sweet. <laughs> no, I appreciate you saying that. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you all for coming by. It was great talking to you guys. Thanks for having. Great talking to you guys. Thank you guys. Thank you, Zach and Chris. All right, and welcome back. Uh, now we're going to be talking about Duck Soup, um, and just to give a little bit of context, this movie is about. It's about something. I'll, I'll read the IMDb because I just don't think uh, I can describe it. Rufus T. Firefly is named president dictator of a bankrupt Fredonia and declares war on a neighbor, neighboring Slovenia. I can't even say real names and they're giving me fake ones. Slovenia over the love and wealth of Miss Teasdale. Jesus. <laughs> um, this is also a Marx Brothers film for those who may not be in the know. Um this was my first experience with a Marx Brothers film. It's just not Same. something that we would have watched growing up in Ireland. I would have never even seen any of like the Three Stooges, Abbott and Costello, those kind of comedy acts that that Americans would probably have watched growing up, would never have really been exposed to it. So this is my first sort of dive into one of the, these guys' films, one of this sort of style of comedy. Wasn't for me personally wasn't for me uh, i think one of, uh, one, of, one of the girls in our in our discord kind of put this perfectly i'm gonna paraphrase her and um, she basically said that it was just like getting hit over the head with a hammer and the hammer is jokes <laughs> and you know it's just basically it's just you're just getting constantly hit with jokes every two seconds and you find yourself maybe smiling at like one out of 20 and like 20 happening two minutes so um yeah i don't know this is kind of weird because like people like kind of told me off for this because i kind of enjoyed the plot more than i enjoyed the jokes because i did think it was kind of like a cool place to go 
by like having this kind of like you know this fake country going up to war with another fake country and sort of seeing the ramifications of that so i kind of enjoyed the plot more than the jokes in a way which kind of seems weird and apparently it is weird to think that according to the other people who who joined in the discussion um, so yeah, I'm kind of interested to hear your guys' take because you've probably been a lot more exposed to, if 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 not the Marx Brothers, but this kind of style of comedy anyway. So Zach, I I don't want to put you on the spot, but as someone who self-proclaimed to not enjoy comedy, I would love to hear what you thought about this one. <laughs> okay, um, so this did not uh, change my life. I'm not <laughs> suddenly going to be finding every Marx Brothers I can I can get my grubby hands on. There were some jokes that actually did work for me, but just like. Adam was talking about there's so many of them that if you don't get some that work you are not a good comedian I mean you put out that many you're literally throwing things at the wall until it works and the ones that do work I think are really funny probably my favorite joke was one where uh he's talking I guess it's Miss Teasdale I can't even remember now but it's like I can see I can see you now bent over a hot stove but I can't see the stove it was the best joke of the thing I thought it was hilarious um and in that it, it kind of reminded me that I love Rodney Dangerfield. He's one of my favorite like stand-up comedians. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a lot of him, but maybe a little bit cleaner. But that's what it reminded me of. Like the jokes that worked, I was like, it's Rodney Dangerfield. That's I feel like he was highly influenced from this. And apparently Rob Zombie was too, since he took the name Firefly for the Devil's Rejects. But and that was a plot point for some reason. But yeah. I I mean I had fun. I'll probably never rewatch it and I'm not like in a rush to watch another Marx Brothers film, but it was there. <laughs> I think Groucho is probably definitely the funniest of the lot. Um, he did have some good one-liners. The spies were so annoying. I could not wait till they were off screen. <laughs> Zeppo Marx is my least favorite of anything anywhere. I just <laughs> which one is he? Is he the mute one? He's the mute one. Okay. My okay. God, he annoyed the crap out of me every time he was on because nothing he was doing was funny. He just came across as an asshole. <laughs> like, he was just being horrible to everyone and we're yeah. supposed to find it funny. The, the part that really ticked me off was when he got and sat in the guy's orange juice that he was selling and he mm-hmm. just got in and sat in the vat of it. And I was like, you absolute prick. This is this guy's livelihood. Like, why are you doing this? <laughs> yeah. At least Groucho was like an asshole to uh, people who kind of deserved it. <laughs> I just <laughs> like that he, was, yeah. he had good one liners. Like that. Uh, you mentioned one of the jokes you really liked. The, the one that were actually, I probably the only one that made me laugh out loud was towards when we're in the battle sort of scene, the sort of latter half of the film. And they're basically saying that one of those generals comes to him and says, oh, we need trenches. And it's like, oh, we don't have time to build trenches. And he hands him some money and says, go buy some trenches then. <laughs> you know, and I just thought that was really funny. You know, that, that got me. Um, it kind of hit me in my funny bone. So not to be an asshole, the... Uh... Who you're talking about is Harpo. Harpo's the silent one. Oh, is it? Okay. Okay. It's okay. Oh, you're right. I'm just I, I was I was just rereading my review and I just saw Zeppo jump out. It is Harpo, you're right. No, all good, all good. Um <laughs> so I think uh this is in twenty twenty one, I don't know like this is my first Marx Brothers film too. I don't know that these jokes feel fresh anymore, right? Like I don't know that there's any joke in this movie that feels like fresh and that might not be fair to judge it that way i completely agree because yeah. it only feels like that because these jokes have been copied yeah for the last what nearly 90 years yeah and this so, is what between yeah. the world wars so <laughs> exactly. that's mm-hmm. how old this is yeah it's 1933 
I think that people were probably ready to laugh at a look at like kind of a crazy look at war. Um, um, but I, I, I feel like this, uh, this felt a lot like Monsieur Hulot's holiday to me, not at, in any way uh, other than a movie that was, you know, unique in its time, probably did some, some things that were extremely innovative in its time that hadn't been seen before. Uh, and probably got some huge belly laughs in their time. Uh, and maybe now are just more kind of, you know, like to be respected and not necessarily like for the purpose of laughing a lot. Right. Like if you've seen, like you said, Rodney Dangerfield or like Seinfeld, can you imagine like, like there's so many comedians that basically are like copies of, of different characters here. Right. Yeah. Um, and they're like they played heavily off of vaudeville which vaudeville in itself has inspired like so many types of stage plays and comedies and comedy tropes and like you know so like harpo is not funny but super talented right like this was apparently the only movie where he doesn't play the harp or there's another instrument that he plays in like every one of his movies and he's like an extremely talented musician um uh like classically trained you know kind of musician so I, I feel like I'm watching a, a weird, almost like documentary on the history of comedy or something, not necessarily watching this like to laugh. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I, gotcha. can, yeah. I, can, I can get that for sure. Um, which one was doing the mirror gag with Groucho that I wanted to punch somebody? <laughs> well, there's was, basically three of them. Yeah, well, but that, I, think I don't know originally which one was it was. I think it was Harpo at first, and then it became Chico halfway okay. through or something. Yeah, something that, like that joke went. I like it's an hour and ten minutes. If you cut that joke out, I think it's a fifty-minute movie. Yeah, that was like when I saw. Like I didn't know the mirror scene was going to be there. I didn't know where. I knew it was like a classic gag. I didn't know where yes. it originated from, and I was like, "Oh, okay, cool. It's the mirror scene." And then I looked at my watch, and I'm like, this is, "They're really dragging the arse out of this gag," you know? It's it's. Like it's it's not often you see other like homages do it better than the original. Like well, when you when, when you do yeah. this as a homage, it's like a 10, 15 second skit. Like Family Guy do it. I did it a couple of times, and I laugh more when they do it because they know they got the timing right. Whereas this is just dragged out so much. I, I think it goes back to throw everything you can at the walls. Like they had these. Yes. Like if you take like you cut this mirror scene up into like ten different scenes and throw them into different movies. I think they'd all be amusing, like at the very least amusing to funny. You throw them all at once, you're like, okay, there it is. So we're going to figure this safe out. (laughs) I think this is a great example of what I'm talking about. Our attention spans in comedy just across the board have become shorter, right? Yeah. Like it's funnier to do clips, right? But it's technically more impressive to do a 12 minute scene. Where yeah, you're one take, that's awesome. Right? Like, the choreography that goes into the mirror scene is super impressive, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but the reaction to that is that it's too long, right? This is what I was really afraid of, and I, I mentioned this in my review as well. I just, it's, it's hard to talk about this film and not sound like you're being harsh. Because I do feel like I'm sounding like I'm coming across harsh, yeah. and I think this is a a shit film or whatever like this is this is no revengeance you know this is it it was i i can i can respect the film 
for what it did and for what it tried to do and the different technical aspects. Like you said, the choreography, you know, the, the amount of planning and practicing that would have had to gone into a lot of these gags. Yeah, fantastic. You know, the one-liners, you know, they, they wrote, they must have sat down and wrote so many jokes. That's all about uh, top of his head. That's the crazy thing. Like he, that was how he was as a comedian. He just was like a living, walking pun. Yeah. How much did that count? I can the, respect. The I can respect right. the film. Just yeah. For the oh, yeah. That's actually yeah. Courtroom. Yeah. When they're um, when Chico keeps miss mishearing. Well, I can't remember the, the exact lines he says, but but they they were actually really funny and clever. They were very clever lines. Yeah. No, that that was probably one part where I, I liked what Chico was doing. I think he was like mishearing Texas as taxes or something like. Yeah, I can't remember the exact lines, but yeah, he kept mishearing certain things and the way he was pronouncing them. It was giving it another meaning. Yeah. Um, courtroom scene well, he was, was up good. For treason, right? Like the whole thing was he was up for treason of the country or something. Yeah. And then the president of the country is like, well, I'll defend him. <laughs> <laughs> no one else will do it. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a ridiculous film. I think that's probably one thing we can say with absolute certainty. So, yeah, I, I don't regret my time. And I, and I want to do the same thing you were talking about, Adam. I don't regret watching this movie. I had. Fun for the most part. There was it definitely felt seventy minutes long. Sometimes I'm like, this is the shortest movie we've watched on a channel that's not a short. <laughs> it's taken a little bit, but the jokes that work. I mean, they're still impressively enough. Almost a hundred years later, there's still jokes that work, and that deserves some credit as well. I mean, as old as this movie is, that there are still things that are funny. And I've been overwhelmingly positive. I should say to balance that out. I didn't laugh that much in this movie. <laughs> um, there's there's a movie I want to prom- I want to have to plug that is very similar in like the chaotic tone from a right around the same era that actually made me laugh a lot. It's called Hell's a Poppin. And there is a cool story behind the movie where it was like one of the most wildly successful live shows. Uh, and they just was like this was finally they made a movie out of it. And at the time, it was this incredibly successful movie, but the guy, Ollie Olsen, didn't really make much of a career in film. Like, I mean, he was more of a live performer. And the movie kind of gets forgotten. And I want to do everything I can to get this movie talked about because it, like, it's amazing. Like, it breaks the fourth wall. It's wildly chaotic. It has a little bit of singing in it, but, like, not really about being a musical. It's, and it, it, it involves like people going into hell, but hell is kind of funny. And there's people like it. Well, anyways, it's just, it's a really wild movie. And it's, I think very similar in tone to duck soup, but actually like I laughed quite a bit. I just couldn't oh. believe what I was seeing. Um, I'll add that to my list. Cause I could, I could probably watch that. Yeah. I'd be curious if y'all get a chance to, I'd, I'd be curious what you think. Uh, it I remember you did a review on us. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, it, yeah. Anyways, it's just I when I watched Duck Soup, all I could think about was how it's probably more technically. I I don't even know if it's more technically impressive than Hell's a Popping. Honestly, like Hell's a Popping was crazy. It's just it's I I wish more people saw it. I wish Criterion puts it out. It's it's number one. Anytime I think about a Criterion wish list, which I've never officially made, it's always my number one. I want to see it get the proper treatment. Don't anger see- Adam. Do not make one. <laughs> like. <laughs> I think this era of comedy for me is just very hit and miss. Like if I if I compare this to Dames, which we watched quite early in the um, 
mm-hmm. in the film club and came out only a year after this. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed Dames a hell of a lot more yeah. than I enjoyed this. I found myself... Now, Dames, the technical aspect of Dames is just incredible. Uh, that sort of final half when they're putting on the stage play. Yeah. But even the lead up to that, where there was a lot of jokes, especially from um, Joan Blondell and, mm-hmm. and everything like that, I found that film a lot funnier. And I just mm-hmm. find myself finding a lot of the time it's just with early comedy, it's very hit and miss. Like another example would be like, um, oh, now I've completely blanked. Well, Mae uh, West films are pretty funny. Mae West. I saw, oh no, maybe I'm thinking of John Blondell again. Um, I saw one that had, um, oh, it's going to annoy the crap out of me now. Um, I watched it a while ago, but um, the guy who did Safety Last and The Freshman, what was that guy's name again? Uh, Harold Lloyd. Yeah. Right. Safety Last. I loved that. I thought it was hilarious. And then I watched The Freshman and I didn't really like it at all. So, and they're very similar films. Like it's all, it's the same kind of character in all of his films, kind of like Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. It's the same kind of character every time. And a lot of the jokes are kind of samey every time. It's just kind of, they slightly change the situation that the characters are in. Um, so yeah, I just I just find this era of comedy just very hit and miss for me personally. And I feel like we can't really. I, I think we've been avoiding it, and I think it's time we talk about the musical element of Duck Soup, the songs. <laughs> I kind so of what think of the songs. Them. I've forgotten about them. <laughs> yeah, same. They're not very. <laughs> I, I don't know why they're there. Honestly, I was just kind of confused why they're there because there's what like I, I guess there's like three. I think there's three, three or four. And they're just kind of weirdly spaced out. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is going to be a song. That's cool, I guess. <laughs> I I don't, yeah, they don't really necessarily fit. I, my, my best guess is that it's just going to that vaudeville thing where you have a mix of everything, right, including some musical numbers. And maybe that was just so tightly tied to their background, um, they, they couldn't separate. Um, but yeah, I don't, I'm not going to, they were, they were not necessarily funny and kind of out of place. <laughs> they Which, were... Yeah. <laughs> Which one thing that kind of felt distracting to me, and this isn't a fault of the film, because obviously they never thought this was going to be an HD at any point. But you know how when somebody pointed out that Cesar Romero has a mustache when he plays the Joker yeah. and you can't undersee it. Once I realized Groucho's mustache was like some kind of paint, that's all I looked at for like the entire movie. Yeah, it's just crazy. <laughs> like paint, I'm sure yeah. like <laughs> when it was on a projector almost like, you know, ninety years ago, nobody cared or could even notice, but I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of supposed to be like that, though, isn't it? Is it? Uh, that's, I, I that's, wasn't sure. that's how I took it, that it was supposed to be just, just like clearly painted on mustache. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I, that's how I took it anyway. Because I, 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 I just assumed that nobody could have possibly believed that this was a real mustache. <laughs> maybe maybe it is. And I'm just like, it doesn't like click with me. So maybe that <laughs> maybe it was on purpose. <laughs> Yeah, I'm also just thinking of the musical numbers. Like, I also, you know, going back to this idea of what would have been funny in 1933. Yeah, 33. Versus now. You know, there's a lot of, like, bear with me, like, I'm kind of putting air quotes, but funny choreography when they're, like, going to war and people are just doing random, like, donkey kicks and they're just, like, totally going wild, right? Like, maybe there were some jokes in there that landed pretty well, just the absurd, like, just to kind of capture, like, the absurdity of like the excitement of going to war or something like that when there's just going to be, especially then knowing how mismanaged it was. And basically he just immediately killed his, his whole country. 
Um, yeah, it was probably like it, it actually was probably kind of so ridiculous that even like great war veterans would be like, yeah, that's kind of funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like you have to take in. Yeah, you have to take into the context of the time where obviously after World War One, you know, people were probably just looking for some levity. Um, you know, kind of how like musicals became huge after World War Two. Right. You know, I can see why this kind of comedy also became very big after World War One because people just needed a bit of escapism and a bit of comedy. And I suppose being able to point towards the absurdity of war, you know, would have gotten, you know, would have given people a good kick. Yeah. Um, one other point, just, just because we've been, you know, if y'all are okay, if I keep bringing up the issue pictures, I think it's kind of an interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they have it as 146. So high. No, but that's I, way too high. <laughs> I, well, I, I have two. I, it's very, very high, and I, it would be nowhere near that high for me. But if you're if you're judging it by pure importance to cinema rather than the quality of the film, then I can understand why it's that high. Is this supposed to be one of the bigger? More I, like I know basically nothing about the Marx Brothers. I was an avid. This, this was the only guy. Marx Brothers film I had heard of. Okay, I didn't know if it was supposed to be the biggest one or. There I think was the night at the opera is their most famous one. Let me see if that's I'll make sure I'm not Yeah, I think a night if, I think if you just casually ask like you know, if you go on the street and just ask people if they've heard of a Marx Brothers film, I feel like most people would say no nowadays. <laughs> but <laughs> the ones that say yes would probably call out a night at the opera. I, I could be wrong, but I feel like that was the one that I knew by name before this. Um so maybe I'm biased. Yeah. Again, Duck Soup is the only one I'd ever heard of. Um, well, saying that, I, I couldn't have been, I, I may not have been able to confirm if it was a Marx Brothers film, but I'd certainly heard of the film Duck Soup. Um, not that I knew anything about it. And I still don't know why it's called Duck Soup. I don't know if one of you guys can enlighten me, but why it's called Duck Soup is completely beyond me anyway. No, the only thing I was, I, I was trying to figure that out. I'm sure there's a, a very like logical explanation to it or there was a joke they told or something. But like, if you think about the fact that ducks naturally swim in water and then all of a sudden that water like boils them up and is their death, maybe there's something imagery in there that connects to the movie. I, I, I don't know. I so was, I just looked it up. Uh, duck soup was an American English slang at the time. It meant something easy to do. Conversely, to duck something meant to avoid it. When Groucho was asked for an explanation of the title, he quit, take two turkeys, one goose, four cabbages, but no duck, and mix them together. I don't know. But in 1933, it probably made a whole lot more sense. Oh, that, I see that same quote. Uh, the end, that, that's not the end of the full quote. Oh, okay. So they mix them together, and it says, after one taste, you'll duck soup for the rest of your life. Ah, uh, okay. So, I guess I, yeah. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. I don't know if that's <laughs> for me, but at least that's an explanation. Uh, yeah. Um, the, but I was I was gonna say just really quick to to close that loop. On, on, I don't think any of us would would vote for this being number one forty six of all time if we made the list. <laughs> um, I, I'm also I also think it's a bit high for me. But you know, uh, Zach, you were talking a little bit about this idea of um, the like subjectivity of art a little bit, right? And yeah, that, yeah, I was yeah. I, I'm sure Adam loved waking up to that this morning. <laughs> a long conversation about it. <laughs> um, yeah, as he does every day, just like what happened when there's a hundred plus messages. Ah, oh, just scrolling up. I honestly didn't even read this today's ones to be honest. With you. Um, but there's an idea in that when we were kind of going back and forth on that, that kind of jumped out to me. And I think like 
for people that are in filmmaking or in comedy, right? Like in this case, let's call it in comedy. And they dedicate their lives to being comedian and studying comedy and going into comedy history. Like, I'm sure that it all roads kind of lead back to like a few groups, right? Like I'm sure there's, you know, if you look at Abbott and Costello, or if you look at the Marx brothers, or if you look at like, I, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of roads of comedy lead back to like a few folks. And if you look at like, if you understand the technical aspects of comedy and like setting up a joke, which I, I don't, but like, I'm just imagining like, if you go into like the structure of writing a joke and stuff, like I'm sure there's a lot of technique and stuff that's pulled from people like the Marx brothers, right. And yeah. Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, maybe for more physical comedy, whatever. But like, I'm sure like they, they come up in the, in the, the, the types of comedians that like to be like punny and have more like wit, like wittiness in their jokes and stuff. And I, I feel like that. So like the study of comedy makes it to where these people get the Marx brothers get brought up so often that the people that then go on to become comedians, rate them high. And then the people that then follow those comedians feel compelled to rate them high. So it's like this self-fulfilling thing, right? Where you can't, if you're just a kind of like us, like amateur, just people that like movies, and you're curious where stuff is rated, the Marx Brothers keep popping up on lists. So you're going to give them a shot. And like, it, it becomes difficult to know, like this is where it becomes really hard to rank film, right? Because like, who's doing the ranking? It's, yeah, it's, and it's, it, yeah. You it's go like ahead, what Adam, we, sorry. No, so just quickly, just like what we brought up in the IMDb episode about this idea of an echo chamber. Um, yeah. And we were, we were trying to figure out why some films are so high on IMDb. And it's just, it's because they were originally so high, other people go and watch them. And because the film doesn't suck, they go, oh, okay, this is a good film. Yeah, I see why it's rated, whatever. And then they'll also rate it that. So it just kind of comes as echo chamber. And I find that just happens with lists a lot. And I guess that kind of, you know, to give credit to these movies that weren't, because, you know, it's almost like this perpetual thing, like what's rated high, it's going to continue to be rated high because, like you said, that's just how it goes. That's, that's the source of it. it's almost a, a really interesting to see these films that weren't rated high that actually were able to squeeze them I, I have no way to know how they were actually successful in doing that or how that actually ends up working but i mean you talk to any horror fan they're going to tell, tell you they love the thing at least most of them will yeah somebody in 1982 how they felt about the thing they tell you they hated it and that's just how it goes and it's yeah kinda, honestly that gives a lot of credit to movies that are able to squeeze themselves in when they started out in a bad place Night of the Hunter, I'm looking at you. Yeah, yeah, Night the of the Hunter. The film that made yeah. Charles Lawton never want to direct again. And, you know, there we go. It's so, yeah, definitely films that can get reevaluated and their importance is then, you know, realized. You give them a lot. I don't know. Well, maybe I don't give them a lot more credit than something that becomes an instant classic. But, um, but like, it happens a lot in general, like, especially with older films, like Citizen Kane was not beloved. Yeah. When it probably came out. Well, I mean, it's trash now. It's less than Paddington, too. That's true. <laughs> trash movie. <laughs> uh, same with like Vertigo. Like you look at all like the top-rated films, you find a lot of them did have a kind of rocky start. Blade Runner as well. Blade Runner was not loved when it came out. Did very poorly at the box office, yeah. mainly because of the obviously the other films that came out around the same time wasn't really that fault, but. Yeah, uh, we won't don't won't get too much off a tangent. If you want more more of this discussion, go back to the IMDb episode. We get more in depth on 
echo yeah. chambers and things like that. Just to briefly bring up before we close out on Duck Soup, then I was just curious to see if it showed up in the Sight and Sound Top 250. Um, you guys know I'm sort of making my way slowly mm-hmm. through that list. And a lot of the time I'm taking them off for other things like the Criterion Challenge that I'm doing um, through Letterboxd as well. I'm able to tick off a few of those through that. And even the Film Club has ticked off a few for me already. And I was just curious to see if this was also on the, the Sight and Sound list. And it is. Uh, it's at 229 for the Sight and Sound Top 250. And I find that the Sight and Sound, I think we established this again during the IMDb episode, the Sight and Sound list kind of goes hand in hand with the They Shoot Pictures list for the most part, probably because they use a very similar scoring system with weighted yeah. scoring through, and it's all film critics. Um, so, right. yeah. So uh, we're coming to now our, our final segment, which as always is any other business, just where we want to just briefly talk about something that we've watched recently that we liked. Um, doesn't have to be Criterion, doesn't have to be objectively good, just something that you enjoyed and you want to you wanna give a shout out to. Um, I'm just going to just pop in quickly with mine. So um, the guys know um, that I'm making my way through the Sight and Sound top two top 250 at the moment. I'm just going in a completely random order, not necessarily in, in the order um, that it's presented, just as I'd seen a lot of the films anyway. And one film that I watched this week that was one of the ones I was kind of afraid of in a sense that it's not a conventional narrative film, but I came out absolutely loving it, was 1929 Man with a Movie Camera, uh, which is a, a Soviet silent film. There's no plot. There's no narrative. There's no main characters. It is simply a man with his camera capturing every essence of the world. And the only way I could describe this film is it is cinematic language in its purest form because it is literally just a man so in love with the idea of cinema and what it can capture that he just tries to capture everything in any way possible. Any kind of shot that was possible at this time in history, this guy did it in this film. Um, and it's just it's such a mind-blowing watch it's a short enough film i think it was only about 70 minutes long it wasn't overly long i was afraid going into it because i only really knew very briefly what it was about through mark cousins's series story of film and where it shows a scene of you know people just sort of walking through a street and i thought oh god how am i going to watch this for an hour of just people walking around but the editing, as well as the, the cinematography, is just so astounding. It's so quick. It's so fun. Just Even though there's no plot, there's just you find yourself enjoying what you're watching, and there's so much fun in the imagery. And you can just tell it's made by a guy who just deeply, deeply loves just capturing imagery. You know, it's it's not boring. It doesn't just sit a, it doesn't just plot a, a, fa- a, a camera on a tripod and just let it run for five minutes watching nonsense. He, he tries to just find so much creative ways to shoot ordinary things. Um, essentially, in my review, I called his camera the main character of the film. And that's essentially what it is because it's just there intersected in the, in daily life just to, capture every facet of life whether it be people objects places he just tries to capture it all and puts it in lovingly into this into this 60 odd minute 70 minute film um like i i highly recommend it to anyone just anyone who enjoys the art of cinema even though there's no plot there's no characters just anyone who enjoys the art of cinema would love this film uh, i got the release from eureka who released it on blu-ray along with four 
uh, other works by the director Ed Ziga Vertov. So it's like five of his films all in one set. Really beautiful restoration that was made from the original full frame film, uh, full frame negative that Vertov himself left with the Dutch Film Academy. He left them there, said, just keep hold of this. Um, back when he showed it, he was traveling around Europe when it first came out, showing it in different places, showcasing it. And he he, st- he ended it in, in Amsterdam and he left it with the institute and said, keep this. And then they were able to restore it a few years ago to basically full HD and it looks absolutely incredible. Um, so yeah, Man with a Movie Camera, um, probably the strangest film that's not like a surrealist avant-garde film you'll ever see, but just really moving and just really fun to watch and highly, highly recommend it. It almost sounds to me, and this is maybe inaccurate, I obviously haven't seen it, but it almost sounds like a mix of a Planet Earth documentary where you're just like watching like this high, at the, you know, the highest definition of things that are just happening along with almost like a cinematographer reel. Like, hey, this is what I'm able to do with a camera, yeah. this sort of lighting. And I don't know if that's how it's supposed to be. It's kind of how it sounds to me and it sounds kind of interesting. To Absolutely. Like the, the fact that Vertov does so much different things with the camera and not just camera editing, there's a lot of creative editing in this film that you would see in other sort of films of that era, like, like Sunrise, like Superimposition. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that in this film as well. Um, and yeah, I, I agree. It's definitely kind of, because that's essentially what Vertov was trying to do with this film was to basically showcase everything cinema can do. So, uh, you know, that sort of idea of maybe being a, a show reel, for a showreel for what cinema can do as an art form is is kind of the best way I could put it from what from what you've just said there, Zach. Oh, I might actually check that out. It's kind of sounds interesting to be able to see like because you know you watch a lot of movies and techniques change, so it'd be kind of cool to see like from eighteen ninety to nineteen twenty nine what the camera movements were at that time. That'd yeah, be kind of interesting. You'll be surprised how how well how well made it is in terms of how free the camera can be and how, how great the editing is. I, I find myself very surprised with some of the shots he was able to capture. So uh, I'm sure you guys will be as well. If you check it out, um, I, I definitely recommend the Eureka release. I don't know if there is a region a for it, but uh, the Eureka release, knowing you guys are both region free. I'd highly recommend that. Okay. Do, you, do you happen to have it handy where it sits on the site and sound list? Mm, it's very, very near the top. I believe it was top 20 if I remember correctly. Yeah, I but, think it's really high, and they shoot pictures as well. If you want to give me 30 seconds, I'll pull it up here. But if if I remember correctly, it was in the top 20. Uh, it's eighth in the top 10, so it's eight. number Wow. Yeah, number eight. Wow. And honestly, I, I'm not surprised. It's it's that good of a film. Um, just in terms of, again, if, you're, if, if you watch movies for the plot, you're probably not going to like it. Like, you know, it sits in between... The Searchers and Passion of Joan of Arc, and a very plot heavy movie. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Searchers is very plot heavy. Joan of Arc is very performance heavy. Yeah, and this kind of film is is, is neither. You know, so um, it, it's interesting where it sits. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was an incredible watch, and I suppose this kind of talks about why ranking is really hard to do because how can you compare a film like Man with a Movie Camera? versus the searchers there's they couldn't be as different a film so why is the searchers better i mean i'd almost say you know it'd be kind of cool to see because you know you got john ford it'd be like oh well you kind of see what influenced him i guess if you really want to like put that together but 
yeah, that'd be the only way I could see it. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. But yeah, look, again, I suppose ranking, we can talk about, we, we've talked about ranking on a whole other episode, and I we could do it for any episode. I think we can talk about how yeah. rankings are strange. But um, yeah, Mammoth Movie Camera, definitely, definitely wreck. 10 out of 10 for me. Um, probably not in the sight and sound 250. <laughs> um, I've been going through Arrow uh, Video's release called American Horror Project Volume 1. Oh, yeah. Where they find obscure, um, independently made horror movies, typically from the 70s, let's call it, 60s and 70s in the U.S. And there's, so I'll just quickly name the movies. So the first one is called Malatesta's Carnival of Blood. Okay. The second one is called The Witch Who Came from the Sea. And the third one is called The Premonition. And if I can think of a way of trying to tie these three movies together, it's like people, I think, were discovering what could be done without a formal studio backing and setup. And people were kind of, you know, you had like um, this new, what is it called? New American, um, like independent kind of cinema, like the Casavetes and you know, some of the work that was being done and it was like near Hollywood, but for low budgets and done very sort of, you know, gritty and, and, and just kind of like without getting permits, just going on the street and shooting scenes really quick, that kind of stuff. And then in remote parts of the country, you had even more obscure, these, you know, low budget, somehow they got a hold of a camera and some film and, and they told the story they wanted to tell. And it was, you know, there was essentially no control on editing the story. And so the stories got really out there. <laughs> um, and I, in, in this discussion around like art is subjective and like where, you know, where do these films like this fit against, you know, the searchers? Like this to me is where that, that conversation gets super interesting because these movies are awesome. <laughs> like, these movies are super interesting. Like Malatesta's Carnival of Blood, the most famous person they have is, um, oh shoot, um, who's the guy? He's um, uh, Herve Velasquez, Herve. Mm -hmm. um, uh, oh shoot, he, he's the guy he plays. Uh, he's, a, he's a little person and he plays, um, he's like the most famous uh, Herve Villages. Um, I'm looking. He his he has a really uh, famous role in the TV show, um, Fantasy Island, where he always says, "It's a plane, it's a plane." That's like his. Oh famous. yeah, Herve. Yeah, whatever that last word you said was, that's correct. Yeah, so he he's like the most notable character in this movie. I don't know how they got him, but it's you know essentially like a really bloody carnival where there's like this evil lurking underground that could potentially be a zombies. You kind of learn a little bit more about it as it goes. But like the way the story is told is so creepy. And then the next one is the witch. Like, I don't even know how to start on that movie. That movie is amazing. The witch who came from the sea. Yeah. You, love it. You've seen it too, right? Yeah. I love it. Like it's just, it's, it's essentially, I mean, I guess I'm not going to, like spoiler alert here, because in the movies made in nineteen like you know seventy six, so spoiler. Alert. 
But like, it's essentially the story of a woman who was assaulted by her father Mm -hmm. and grows up to be a serial killer, which in and of itself is a haunting enough story. But there's this crazy layer they put on narrative layer. They put on top where it's possible that she's like this age old witch from the sea and she has this relationship with the guy she calls like Captain John or whatever, like like a sea captain. And they, there's like allusions to the fact that they could be these like age old sort of sea, I don't know, witches and, and, and you know, spirits. Um, but it's never really fully explored. And there's a lot of plot holes and a lot of like, yeah. <laughs> but like the, the experience of watching this movie is just, captivating and for some reason they chose her style of murder is to like taking a small razor blade and like cutting up men's uh it's called longshoremen um uh uh and and that's the way that she kills them and like it's it it would just there's no reason for this movie to exist and i'm so happy it does it's a it's a beautiful crazy dark story and then the premonition is equally like there's this one scene in the premonition where this there's a biological mother who's not seen her daughter in years and the daughter's been adopted and the biological mother finds out where the daughter is and she's waiting for her after school one day and all you see is these spindly fingers through a fence through a chain link fence and it's just the way that it's shot it's so creepy because you know the mom's waiting for the daughter and you just see these fingers like creeping through a chain link fence waiting for the daughter to come and then you hear the voice of the daughter without actually seeing who it's coming from and it's just like, you know, these choices that are made that if they were in like The Shining or if they were in like well-known horror movies, people would be talking about the way that scene was shot and the way it was like the creepiest shot ever. But it's in these little, you know, kind of throwaway horror films that don't get talked about. And I'm just so happy that Errol's putting them out and um, first of all, finding them somehow and then putting them out on a, on a release where they're restored to the highest quality possible. And so I wanted to do my citizenship part here and, and, and talk about them and try to get them known a little bit better. Yeah, it's sorry, Zach. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say uh, the Witches Came from Sea is one I, I I love. I'm glad to see somebody else has found it because it's a great movie. Um, it's kind of a good story, and I don't want to go too far into this because this isn't what our discussions on. But it it's kind of like how legends are born. Like you know, we used to call Albert Fish the Gray Man, you know, because he ate children, but he was almost like this otherworldly figure. Or Elizabeth Bathory, who was the person who was known to bathe in the blood of virgins in like the 17th century, and to have other powers. And I think it's interesting in that concept. And I'm just, oh, cool. yeah, I know me and you have talked about, I think I recommended it to you, Adam, but I think you said it had like some elements you didn't really want to explore. Yeah. So I understand whole, that as yeah, well. whole child abuse acts fest. I just, I just noped out of that, you know, I just, yeah, yeah nah, that's not my cup of tea. It's, especially cause I, I, when I, whenever I see a film that could be dicey, and a lot of people probably won't like me for doing this, but I go to the IMDb parental guide section that's just to see how, just to see how dicey it could be. And then, like, if something's implied, that's fine, you know, like an it or something like that, where mm. things are implied. But like, when it's going to be like kind of graphic, I'm like, nah, no, not for me. Yeah, thanks. I wouldn't this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what yeah, I, see Zach I, recommended to me. And I said, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I, so I do forget sometimes. I'm like, yeah, some people don't like watching these things. <laughs> 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 but no, that's what the parental guides are for. You know, I don't judge anybody for doing that. So, you know, why well, watch something you're going to be upset watching? <laughs> that's yeah. not your objective. For sure. Like, one thing I just wanted to bring up really quickly on this um, I'm glad that you brought up these films. Um, and 
we're lucky that places like Arrow and mm. stuff like try and and um, bring them back. I know that even Nicholas Winding Refn is really involved in trying to mm-hmm. restore films from this era too with his company. Um, and just on on the the topic of the what was it the witch who came from the sea is that the mm-hmm. proper title? Because actually I was actually going to bring this up before you brought up what that plot was, and I thought oh, okay that kind of ties in nicely. There's this really cool film called Night Tide. I don't know if you guys have heard from it. It's um, from 1960, I want to say 1961. It's one of Dennis Hopper's first starring roles. So, so yeah, I was thinking. Uh, and actually, it's it's been, it was released by Indicator. Indicator did a Blu-ray release for it. And it's, again, this really fun, creepy, sort of weird horror film where Dennis Hopper plays a sailor. He's on shore leave. And he meets this woman who plays a mermaid in an attraction at a fairground. But again, there's kind of similar to what you're saying about this film with the witch who came from the sea. It's kind of, it may be implied that she actually might be a mermaid or a siren and all, and this murder start happening. And it just plays with that ambiguous nature very well. Um, So I'd recommend Night Tide if, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, And I suppose it's just, I don't know films in this era. You just kind of have to get lucky. Like a film can be great, but if it was forgotten, you just have to hope somebody finds it. Like we're lucky that things like you know Carnival of Souls or Night of the Living Dead, who would have been made on probably similar budgets to these films, we're just lucky that those had, um, you know, those got found, yeah, and they got their releases because, you know, I'm sure there's lots of other films from the sort of 60s and 70s that were super low budget that could be really great, and there's maybe sitting on a film reel somewhere hoping somebody one day will find it so um you know we're lucky to have the ones that we do have and hopefully maybe more get found the 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 famous the most famous story there uh not for not safe for workout section of the podcast here but the most famous story there that i could think of is the bat pussy uh release which i want to go on record as saying is one of the funniest movies i've ever seen even though it's technically a pornographic film there's nothing erotic about it. Um, <laughs> zero erotic in that movie. I've gotten recommended more porn by Chris than anyone else I've ever known. <laughs> <laughs> Very selective in what I recommend. <laughs> but like, it is just two like people that are kind of middle-aged who haven't, you know, let's say, uh, put fitness as their top priority in life. <laughs> that are just rolling around in the bed naked, literally like throwing insults at each other for an hour, like mean insults at each other. Like not like kind of cutesy romantic ones. Like, I hate you. Like, (laughs) (laughs) and and then at some point this superhero comes into the picture, uh, the titular Batpussy comes in and, and, and is nervous that there's a porno being made in her town and comes in to save the day and gets, talked into a threesome with this group and then just at some point gets up and walks away and leaves and there's no resolution. And like, if, if you can kind of get over the Protestant guilt of like watching naked people, like it is a funny movie. Like it is an objectively funny, funny movie. Like how celluloid the- was invented for this movie. You what? <laughs> celluloid was invented for this movie. <laughs> like yes, how did this get made? But and it was sitting in a video store somewhere. So to your That's point, Adam, awesome. it was just sitting in a video store somewhere, and it was probably only one copy of it, right? And yeah. if Nicholas Winding Refn's company hadn't discovered it somehow and made it their goal in life to get this 
you know, put out and released. I don't know why they made it a limited edition. That's a whole other story. They should have made this widely available to the masses. But this movie would have been completely lost, and it's something I think everybody should see. It is really funny. <laughs> I just want to know who admitted they had seen it so they could restore it. Like, what person <laughs> in that company said, yes, this movie exists, and we should do it. I, I know why you say that, but I promise you, if you see it, you don't need any explanation. It's one okay. of those ones where you can't really describe it without sounding like a dirty perv. <laughs> when you watch it, there's nothing erotic about it. Like, <laughs> I mean, I guess if you're into some real weird kink, but like, that's like a real niche kind of like um, erotic. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, um, I guess it's my turn, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, this is going to be fun, as I'm famously known to not be able to pronounce anything. I'll be talking about a Spanish movie today, so yes. let's see if those four years of Spanish classes I took did anything for me. <laughs> um, I'm going to be ta- uh, the movie I watched. Um, it's uh, Perdita Durango, which in the U.S. it was originally called Dance with the Devil. It was cut all to pieces and released, so obviously that means. Nobody saw it. Nobody cared about it. But the kind of the interesting thing about this is it's actually based on a novel, and it's the same series of novels that Wild at Heart was based off of. So this is the same universe. Actually, the character of Perdita Durango is actually in Wild at Heart. Um, I can't remember who plays her in the movie. It's a very small character, but it is all connected. So essentially, this is the same sort of story. You got this story about two um, criminals who are on the road and they're played by Rosie Perez and Javier Bardem, two great actors. Um, They have great chemistry together. Um, What makes this one a little bit different than your typical Heathers or True Romance, which both I really like, and then there's Natural Born Killers, which I don't like, but I respect on some weird level. Um, You know, the thing that, you know, because they're, you know, Natural Born Killers and the other two are kind of on opposite spectrums of this type of film, this one kind of fits in the middle of them. Like, it's still, like, these characters are deranged, they're criminals. Um, Hardy, uh, Javier Bardem is playing basically a voodoo priest who wants to sacrifice these two kids they find because, oh, well, you know, I need to make sure I can do well on this trip. I need to, I need to make sure this is going to be fine. So, and then there's this weird relationship because he's, you know, it's a couple, so he's having sex with the girl, she's well i shouldn't have to say having sex they're raping the these people and you almost sound like oh this is going to be such a heavy film and it's and it's not like i don't know how i'm gonna try to say the director's name alix de la inglesia which apparently if you translate means the church so take that for what you will i'm not going to try to say it again um but he he is kind of highly influential in this sort of idea that there's all these people who respect him, but his movies have never really gotten the time of day because he made this. He also made day of the beast, which I just got through the mail. So I'm excited to watch that one now, but he has this dark humor about him and he balances these really dark subject matter. Cause like their objective is to take this semi truck that's full of dead fetuses to a cosmetic company in Las Vegas for money. <laughs> like that's, that that's the whole objective of the film. But at no point does it ever feel heavy. It's just almost ridiculous. It, it it plays on that line of the threat is real, but it's almost farce in a way because things are just really funny. Like they're, it's very dark and they're minute. Like Javier Bardem can be menacing, and the next two minutes later he can be really funny. So 
Um, it was an interesting film. Highly recommend it for if any of that sounded interesting, which it probably didn't, but still highly recommend it either way. <laughs> Is it like the Coen brothers a little bit where they can tackle that dark subject matter and still make it funny? Yeah, I would say so. I would say it's a lot pulpier. Like, okay. Yeah. Like, I mean, no, no fear of blood and, you know, I think the picture I sent Adam for uh, the review was the, uh, Javier Bardem and Rosie Perez, like sleeping with a decapitated head while like, obviously they just had sex. That's the type <laughs> of movie this is. This well, is the one that's going up on theylivebyfilm.com. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it's quite tasteful. I okay, yeah. Uh, and okay. I mean, he's a, the guy, he's a very talented guy. You can tell he's very inventive with the camera. He's He's one of those guys, you know, you like you talk about Sam Peckinpah, you talk about John Carpenter you, or anyone like that. These guys who like their pulp, they they like that. They like this violence. They like this depravity. But they're talented guys and they know how to tell those stories. Yeah. No matter how bad it gets, they know the proper tone they need and everything. Just uh, to close that, you're wondering who played... Per Dita Durango in Wild at Heart, it was Isabella yes. Rossellini. Okay, okay, oh, cool. yeah. So supposedly the same character, and um, Barry Gifford, I think, is his name. The one, the author. I think he yeah. actually helped on both screenplays. He did definitely help on Wild at Heart because I literally I was just having a quick look through the production, and yeah, it was literally um, David Lynch had chatted to Barry Gifford, and he said he was working on a screenplay, and then Lynch was like, "Okay, cool, I'll make that." Wow. <laughs> that sounds like a lynch. Yeah. And what's funny is that's the first book, and then this is the third book. As far as I know, there's never been a movie on the second book. Because it's a trilogy. Okay. When David yeah. Lynch asked if he'd like to elaborate on why, he said, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to think one last thing. It was, um, and then I think he helped Lynch on Lost Highway. I think was the Oh, that's one. cool. I love Lost Highway. Yeah, so I think he helped on that one as well. I want to look that up. And I definitely, Barry Gifford, I definitely know that name. I'm pretty sure I must own something that he wrote because I, I do definitely recognize the name. Uh, yeah, co-written. Uh, Lost Highway was co-written by Barry Gifford. I need to look this guy's, I need to look up this guy's books. Given the way this podcast ended, I have to ask, is it a Barry Gifford sex doll? <laughs> you are. Given the dark turn this podcast took right at the end. Appropriate <laughs> <laughs> question to ask at the end. <laughs> yeah, I love that Adams over there talking about like this 1929 Soviet film that's really talking <laughs> about like the importance of cinema. And me and Chris are so you want to talk about your sexual assault movie? Okay, I'll I'll also counter with one as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez. Yeah, uh, I found out where when no Barry Gifford. Um he wrote um he wrote a biography on Jack Kerouac. Um, so that's how I know him. That is random. That is yeah. so random. <laughs> there we go. He also wrote, um, he actually has quite a lot of nonfiction about um, things that are not terrible. Um, you know, Out of the Past, <laughs> Adventures in Film Noir, Day of the Races, Education of a Race Tracker. You know, he also has a, a biography on Soroyan. So you know, he just seems like a, a dude with, with varied interests. Well, let's end on Adam bringing us back into legitimacy. Well done. Well played. <laughs>
that wraps up this week's episode of They Live By Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. You can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care.